Hello, you're listening to We Thought About Games, the podcast where games are looked at historically, fondly, and critically. I'm your host, Sid Menon, and tonight we'll be discussing Castlevania Lament of Innocence, an action-adventure game developed by Konami Computer Entertainment Tokyo and published by Konami in 2003 for the PlayStation 2. Joining me on this episode is Mello. Hi, everyone. So nice to see you. <laughs> so, Mello, well, how'd you get into Castlevania? Oh, it's, it's a great story. I've always been a huge fan of vampires, and a few of my friends were like, I'm surprised you're not into the Castlevania series. I'm like, what's that? So I started my Castlevania journey by playing Symphony of the Night on stream, and then I quickly played other games in the series. The second one, I believe, was Castlevania III Dracula's Curse. It started a deep love and fascination for the Castlevania series as a whole, with the Netflix series coming out about the same time that I got into the series as a whole. What I wound up doing is pledging to myself that I would play all of the quote-unquote canon timeline games in the order that they fell in the timeline. So that took me to Lament of Innocence. Awesome. You ended up playing that on stream as well, right? I did. I did. It was one of my longer streams, and I was really quite bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> as for me, I got into Castlevania when I had my big like emulation phase in middle school, and I think I had the choice between Super Castlevania 4. So good. Or Dracula X. And I, of course, was in middle school, so I chose Dracula X because of its name. <laughs> it's so edgy. <laughs> I know, right? I'm kind of glad I did, though, because mm. a lot of people have, for fair reasons, a negative opinion of Dracula X on Super Nintendo. Yes. If I'd played Super Castlevania 4, I kind of would have been what I expected out of Castlevania. Like, it starts like moody music, a slower pace, like a gothic atmosphere. And that's all true of Castlevania, but Dracula X starts with like, it's very colorful and bold and the first stage's music has a like slap bass at the beginning. Oh yeah. It's just really energetic and that's like where Castlevania had gone by that time. It sort of shook things up for me and I got really interested in the series and I started playing like one on an emulator. I tried two and got hopelessly lost. Of which course, is of course. <laughs> true, I think, of everyone who plays that game. If they said they didn't, they're lying. <laughs> A little while later that I got a PS2. You know, I'd had one by then, but I got grounded all the time, so I didn't play it as often. <laughs> so I think it was around college when I finally played Lament of Innocence. I originally was just going to get Curse of Darkness because I, I had a habit of looking at games in terms of how many features they had. I guess I came around. I like games like Devil May Cry. Oh, yes. And Lament of Innocence looks a lot like Devil May Cry 1. Oh, yeah. That was what I thought when I first played the game as well. I'm like, I feel like I've played this before. It's kind of like <laughs> Devil May Cry 3. <laughs> I really liked it then, especially because I played through a lot of PS2 action-adventure games. Mm. And a lot of those make a pretty cool first impression and then really level out and the endings are terrible. <laughs> yep. And Castlevania, I actually thought the final boss was pretty good. On replay, not quite as good. Mm. It didn't completely fall apart. I didn't hate the game by the end and like want to sell it and then want to tell people, hey, here's a video game you've never heard of. By the way, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess that always stuck with me. I'd find like a new PS2 game and try it out and it would have similar problems to the other ones besides Lament of Innocence. So it always stuck out to me for that reason. I see. Going into this episode, I thought that was worth looking at, as well as the critical reaction at the time versus how much changed immediately after that game came out. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting in historical context. For sure, for sure. Speaking of, we should uh, get into the development history. Let's go!
Kochi Igarashi, also known as Ego for short, was the co-director of Castlevania Symphony of the Night in 1997, which was critically acclaimed, but it was a 2D game on the PlayStation 1, so for anyone who listened to the Mega Man X4 episode, I have to reiterate, yes, that was a really big problem for 2D games in the late 90s. <laughs> it's so hard to imagine now when people put like Pixel in their title on purpose to make a game sell more. <laughs> Even in magazines is a pretty infamous shot. I can't remember which magazine it's from, but it was comparing Castlevania on the N64 to Symphony of the Night and saying, Castlevania 64, look at these amazing realistic 3D graphics Ooh. versus Symphony of the Night. Look at these sumptuously detailed gothic 2D environments. Boring. <laughs> Boring snooze fest. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, also in 1997, Konami's Nagaya Studio released Castlevania Legends for the Game Boy. The previous Game Boy Castlevania game came out six years before this one. That's a wild fact to me. I didn't think there was such a big difference between the two. Yeah, I forgot that too. It felt like they came out close together, especially because Castlevania Legends on a technical level is in every way worse than Belmonster Bench. <laughs> I don't really know why. And it's so weird because like a system having a long lifespan, like the original Game Boy and Konami being people who were pretty good at making games for multiple consoles, you'd think they would have this real mastery and this would be like the furthest you could push the original Game Boy technology. Yeah. And instead it looks like it came out when the Game Boy came out. Yep. <laughs> it's a real shame. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, the Game Boy Color would come out. So the kind of long tail development of appreciation for it over time, like it didn't get a chance. By the time that game dropped in price, the Game Boy Color was out and they were color games. I feel like it was a really forgettable title in the series. And I only learned about it pretty late in my Castlevania journey. And it seemed like a very sad missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. So you didn't end up playing it, right? Because it was removed from canon. Truthfully, I, I tried the Game Boy games. Mm -hmm. And I found that they were really slow, and I played it for maybe 5-10 minutes, and I was like, y'all won't mind too much if I just skip these games, right? Because I was streaming at the time, and <laughs> everyone seemed to be in agreement that it was totally fine for me to just nix those. <laughs> also, it was posited as an origin for the Castlevania series, mm. but it was also, you know, just like a spin-off Game Boy game. So the plot is that the main character was just born with supernatural spiritual power, and <laughs> Dracula killed her family, and she inherited her grandpa's enchanted whip. And then, if you get the best ending of the game, it's implied she slept with Dracula's son, Alucard, and that's why all the Belmonts are the way they are, that whole clan, destined to fight Dracula forever because they're actually related. It's wild to me. I honestly think there's so much potential in that plot. I was really taken aback the first time I heard about it, and I was like, there's no way. I can see why it was redacted, <laughs> but now I just have like this gnawing curiosity so i would love to hear your opinion on if it would have held its own as an origin story versus lament of innocence i remember people being upset at lament of innocence because they replaced you know one of the few female protagonists in the yes. series with another guy yeah but also i thought the origin story was that sonia was just like a country girl and <laughs> learned how to use a bullwhip from her grandpa for fun because she was like a tomboy <laughs> And then Dracula murdered her family while she was away. So she just got super pissed off and killed all of them with a bullwhip. And oh, that's, that's so awesome. That's what made it special. <laughs> yeah, like I thought, okay, I'm like, yeah, I can see why people are upset at that versus the yeah. definitely more convoluted version of Lament of Innocence's origin. But that's not what happened. And in fact, it's someone was born special one day and then they did the thing that they were born special to do. Aw, what a shame. <laughs> Two years afterwards, Konami's Tobey Studio released Castlevania on the N64. It was just called Castlevania. 
though most people call it Castlevania 64 now, mm. in January of 1999. It was a pretty rough transition to 3D, didn't sell super well, didn't review very well. To emphasize the turnaround time on this, I didn't just say the year, I said January of 1999, because the revised and expanded version of the game came out in December of 1999. Wow. Even if it did fix everything, it was a revised version of a game that did not that well. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it also didn't fix everything. So the combination of those two things made it kind of an interesting but wasted effort. Oh, that's a shame. Did you play the N64 ones at all? There's a trend here, honestly. <laughs> I tried it for the first 5-10 minutes and decided, nope, I can't do this right now. It's couldn't play it. <laughs> the controls were really difficult for me to wrap my head around, so I will be revisiting it someday, but not today. <laughs> I mean, they're quite difficult because they're kind of bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though I do know a few people who speedrun them, and it seems a lot more fun watching somebody speedrun those games. Yeah, it's learnable. Right. They have their charms. Yes. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, but as far as a fun game to play, I don't know. Right, right. I was kind of surprised then because the next big Castlevania game is also from the Kobe studio of Konami, Circle of the Moon for the Game Boy Advance in 2001, which followed the Castlevania Symphony of the Night model and not the sort of classic level-by-level -level arcade game model of the older games. In my quest to play all the Castlevania games, I'm starting with the canon titles, and as far as I understand, Circle of the Moon is not considered a canon title, so I haven't actually played it myself yet. So I'd be really curious to try it one day as well, even if it is notoriously difficult. Also, I mean, as far as the story, it has the most bland protagonist in the entire Castlevania series. Really? That's saying something. Because I feel like a lot of the protagonists are kind of one note or, you know, you perceive them as you will. So that's interesting to hear. Nathan Gray is the protagonist of that game. He speaks but says totally predictable, uninteresting things. Oh. You can't put an interpretation on top of him that he is possibly more interesting <laughs> because you know he's not. <laughs> I see, I see. It has its defenders. I mean, I, I can understand that. It has some cool systems. As a Game Boy Advance title, people weren't expecting 3D, I guess, anymore, so they set the proper expectations, and I think people had come around on Symphony of the Night by this time. 2D Castlevania finally had a route to come back, and so, Koji Igarashi returned for the sequel, Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance, the following year, and also brought along with him character designer Ayami Kojima, whose art is basically synonymous with Castlevania's identity now. Yes. <laughs> very androgynous, very gothic. Very beautiful. Self-taught as well. Oh, right, right. She's so freaking good. So, with this success, Igarashi was given the green light to do a new 3D game. Woohoo! <laughs> And that was unveiled at E3 2003, and its title was simply Castlevania because it was going to be a new starting point for the series. They'll also recall that Castlevania 64 was originally called Castlevania, and the original Castlevania game was called Castlevania. They're just trying it again and again and again, hoping it sticks. <laughs> this time, it's the beginning. <laughs> for real, this time. Interestingly, it was set to be released just five months after its announcement in October. Oh. I feel like that specific window doesn't really happen with game announcements anymore. It's out right now, or it's going to be out three years from now, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that trend as well with recent game launches. And I think five months is a pretty decent window, because like you can be excited and it's soon enough, but it's not too soon that you're like, I'm playing a game right now. Why did you release this right now? I can't, <laughs> I'm not done. And I find it interesting that they wind up releasing it in October. I wonder if that was intentional. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's not as much Halloween stuff in 
Japanese titles. I feel like the holiday is not referenced very often. Mm-hmm. If anyone, I imagine Koji Igarashi respects Halloween. <laughs> Hopefully so. <laughs> <laughs> Igarashi was interviewed by Christian Nutt of IGN before the game came out, and he said he wanted to revive Castlevania as a console experience, saying, From now on and in the future, this will be the starting point, and I'd like to proceed with 3D Castlevania. It all depends on the platform and the market. If the market still allows 2D gaming, I would also proceed with that game design as well. And for an indication of how that went, later that same year, Aria of Sorrow came out for the Game Boy Advance, and that's what the next set of Castlevania games was based on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also in an interview conducted by Kurt Collada for 1UP in 2006 for the series' 20th anniversary, he talked about why he removed Castlevania Legends from canon. This game is set in 1094, and Legends is set in 1450. So he said, these games were taken out of the timeline, not because I didn't work on them. Feels like he's kind of answering a question he wasn't necessarily asked. <laughs> I guess he's trying to get out ahead of it. Trying to cover his bases. <laughs> but because they were considered by the directors to be side projects in the series, especially Legacy of Darkness and Circle of the Moon, the only exception to this trend is Castlevania Legends. I intentionally redacted from the timeline, so that it didn't conflict with the timing used in other titles. Hmm. Which, considering the ending of this game is, we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is just kind of interesting how all these games came out together and sort of led to Lament of Innocence happening at all in the first place. Yeah. And then they were removed from the timeline. I mean, theories canon, I'm not too concerned with. Mm-hmm. It is kind of strange. <laughs> that they bother. It is. Because the plot of these games, even like the lesser ones, is that some person for some reason has to kill Dracula and then they do it. Exactly. It's, it's not that complicated, <laughs> you know? It's like every hundred years, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> the real reason, this is a guess, this is not backed yeah. up by anything, that I think he may have wanted to remove Castlevania Legends from canon and make a new origin, is that Konami had recently, in 2000, canceled Castlevania Resurrection, Mm. of which Sonya Belmont was one of two main characters. Ah, my heart hurts. (laughs) Interestingly, the prototype surfaced, and you can download it and try it out, mostly just run around environments that aren't complete, but it's neat. It's an interesting piece of history. I keep saying I'll get around to playing it or, you know, trying to play it, navigate my way through it, I should say. At some point, I'm really curious to see how that looks. For Lament of Innocence, Ayami Kojima returns again as character designer and illustrator. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. That was honestly my favorite thing about Lament of Innocence, is I find that the character designs and the environments as well, they just look stunning. Mitrio Yamane, who was the composer from Symphony of the Night, one of them, returns as the lead composer on this game. Igarashi limited her to using either one or two arrangements of music from the previous series, instead of the usual tradition of bringing back multiple songs, to establish this as a new jumping-off point for the rest of the series. She got her start back in Castlevania Bloodlines for the Genesis, which has a great soundtrack. Also for this game, it was originally conceived with a fully interconnected map, but this was paired back because Igarashi thought it overcomplicated navigation and made puzzles too difficult to solve, so it was changed to be a level-by-level design, with the only remnant being that you can get a key in one level and it'll be for a door in a different level, for just a bonus area. The game was completed ahead of schedule, which is very... That never happens now. (laughs) Never, (laughs) ever. But it left them with more time than they expected to tweak the game balance. And of that, Igarashi said, Because we had too much time, we adjusted it again and again and again. We're so used to the game that it almost became too difficult, which is interesting. 
considering his next point about the franchise being more popular in the West than it was in Japan. He said, it seems that Japanese gamers have the image that Castlevania is an extremely difficult game. Since Symphony of the Night, I've taken a great effort to make the games easy enough that any casual gamers could enjoy them, but I don't know that it's reached them. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. We'll get into it later, but I would not say Lament of Innocence is an easy game. <laughs> as far as how it did in the West, it uh, received generally positive reviews within the 7 to 9 out of 10 range because of its gothic atmosphere, its soundtrack, and its responsive combat. There are some fairly negative reviews, but even in positive ones, the structure of the levels is pretty repetitive, where you'll have a square room connected by a hallway to another square room. One of my complaints as well is I definitely found that it could have been more varied. And the overall game design was pretty simple compared to the Game Boy Advance games. I think the combat system moment to moment has more depth, but overall you don't have a lot to manage or a lot of customization compared to the Game Boy Advance titles. Mm -hmm. It was praised in comparison to the N64 games because, I mean, the environments are definitely much nicer looking and there's not that confusion as to what you can even interact with. <laughs> right. The platforming doesn't ask as much of you, but it's just less punishing as a whole. It has its frustrations, but you fall too far in the N64 game and you get injured. So if you screw up jumps enough times, you die. In this one, there's nothing like that. There's just Leon shouting into the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Some reviews did prefer the faster pace of previous action-adventure titles like Devil May Cry in 2001 or Sega AM7's reboot of Shinobi in 2002, which are definitely much faster paced, but some people preferred Lament of Innocence, in part because it's more laid back, but also definitively way less difficult than those games, which are truly punishing. <laughs> And with that, we can move on to a recap of the game. So it opens with a very bland intro. <laughs> it's just <laughs> scrolling text, and there's yep. some music, and there are no images until they name a character, and then they flash the concept art. Don't get me wrong, gorgeous concept art, but mm -hmm. it just seems so lacking in this context, especially because they give so much depth to the story and the backstory, and I would love to see it utilized in a more effective way. And it jumps through time a bit, but you think they could use some montage or something? Yeah. It just stands out because this is a thing that a lot of games in the PS2 era emphasize. Like, a lot of those games that fell apart at the end open in a very interesting way. <laughs> but this game just is totally unconcerned with that first impression. It's just like, yep. here's the plot. It's a big chunk of plot. It goes on <laughs> for quite a while. It does. I think it's like three minutes or something. In summary, knights have become the ruling class as of the year 1094 serving the church. Among them are Leon Belmont and Matthias Cronquist, who are considered an unstoppable duo. Leon in terms of combat skill, and Matthias with his strategic thinking. And then they mention a very odd thing, which is funnier to hear out of the narrator saying it. <laughs> Matthias Cronquist, a genius tactician whose learning made him an exception in a largely illiterate society. That's kind of weird. No one's literacy is a point of the plot at any moment. Not really relevant. I mean, cool, I guess. Congratulations. But everyone else in this game can read, I think. I guess I don't know if Medusa can read or not. Hmm. Good question. Upon returning from a crusade, Matthias learns that his wife, Elisabetta, had passed away in his absence and he becomes bedridden with grief. Meanwhile, monsters appear in Leon's home territory but the church won't engage with it because they don't want their soldiers doing battle outside the Crusades. 
From his sickbed, Matthias tells Leon that these monsters are tied to a vampire whose castle resides in a forest called Eternal Night, and that his fiancée Sarah has been kidnapped by this vampire. I don't know how a bedridden man learns before Leon did. I was gonna say, I feel like that is a serious plot hole. How does he know this? Perhaps we'll find out later. <laughs> it just seems very bizarre. Yeah, that Leon didn't think this was straight. Well, he's not a very smart guy. <laughs> no, he's kind of... That comes across. He's wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> he renounces his title as a knight so that he can go rescue Sarah. First actual scene of the game with visuals is Leon rushing into a forest and he passes through a barrier into the forest of Eternal Night and meets a man named Ronaldo. Leon's voiced in English by Dave Wittenberg, who you may have heard in Persona 4 as Teddy. Luckily, he sounds nothing like that, though it would have been pretty funny if he did. Yeah, for sure, for sure. In Japanese, he's voiced by Nobutoshi Kana, who is the voice of Guts from Berserk, or was, ah. but sounds nothing like him either. Uh, which wouldn't suit Leon. No, definitely not. And Ronaldo is voiced in English by Michael McConaughey. He was the voice of the agency in Crackdown. He was very burdened in Resident Evil Revelations to great dad voice. I quite liked his performance a lot. I quite liked it. His performance is definitively the best out of everyone in the game. <laughs> I agree, I agree. So Ronaldo asked Leon to come back with him to his cottage, where he'll explain the setup of this kidnapping. Ronaldo, can I ask you something? What is it? Why are you living in a place like this? I have unfinished business with Walter Bernhardt, the master of this forest. Unfinished business? Not worth mentioning. I owe him. Well, I won't ask any more, but you're not in danger living so close to him? It seems eternal life is extremely boring. He enjoys playing at cat and mouse with the hunters that come here. Though, of course, there's no way that he could ever lose. He thinks that um, my helping hunters makes the game more fun. I see. But what do you mean by there being no way he could lose? Vampires are loved by the night, and this forest is locked in eternal darkness. He has never been defeated. Well, that may be so, but I must go ahead and face him. Did he... take someone precious? Yes, he abducted my betrothed. How did you know that? It's what he always does when he starts the game. As mentioned, Leon gave up his title, so he gave up his sword as well because it's property of the church and came unarmed and said he would just take some weapons from all the previous people who have come through here. But Ronaldo instead gives him the Whip of Alchemy and explains to him what alchemy is because it's 1094 and the church has not learned about it or learned that they should be mad about it. <laughs> Along with this, Ronaldo mentions that he's actually known Matthias for longer than Leon has because the Cronquist family possesses a book about the alchemic arts. Matthias kept this knowledge of alchemy secret from Leon because some people consider it heretical. Ask Leon if he thinks it is. He just found out what it is and that it makes really good whips. <laughs> that would be pretty strange of him. A little bit skeptical, but open to it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, well, okay, if Matthias trusts you, then I trust you. And then Ronaldo 
additionally enchants the protective gauntlet on Leon's left hand and says that he can use magic relics without being trained in magic if he holds this gauntlet out to block certain magical attacks, which is actually a game mechanic where enemies will flash purple and then strike, and if you block that, you'll get magical power. Mm-hmm. And after all that, he says, this is all I can do for you. Like, he didn't just do a ton of stuff for Leon. <laughs> and then says, I'll also be a shop. Renato's MVP. He's great. <laughs> the real hero of this. If Leon had just marched straight in the castle, he would have just died. <laughs> straight up. Yeah, it's true. It's a fact. So after this cutscene's over, you finally get control. Like we mentioned, the game has some similarities to Devil May Cry 1. The movement feels pretty similar. You don't run super fast, but you're not too slow. It's a nice, brisk pace. So you can try out the controls here at the shop. There'll be an actual tutorial area later. You can also go to the shop right now. The shop mostly sells potions, like Ronaldo mentioned. Most definitive source of healing items, otherwise you just have to randomly find them. It eventually sells new armors for you. The unlock condition isn't totally clear, but it's how much of the map you filled out in the game. So finding secret areas can make that faster, but playing the game normally will not have you that far behind on acquiring them. Oh, I didn't know that. And this is the only place to get armors, and each one's definitively better than the previous one. As I was playing the game, I wondered, like, I feel like I should be picking up more items or armor or anything, really. So it's comforting to hear that this is the only way to get armor, so I'm glad I didn't (laughs) miss out too badly. (laughs) That's one thing we'll say about this game up front. You can beat this game missing, let's say, 80% of the items. Yep, yep, and I think that contributes to its difficulty for sure, at least in my case. <laughs> I know I didn't get any other relics apart from the first one, so... Yeah. Also, a thing I noticed that was interesting, when you walk up to the castle, you get a little cutscene of Leon walking in, and the title shows up on top of it. In preview footage of the game from, like, E3 and such, the full graphically designed title it says Castlevania Lament of Innocence. It's on the box and the title screen shows up. Mm-hmm. In the release version of the game, it's just the word Castlevania in plain text. Interesting. I can't think of a reason why they would choose to do it over that. Maybe they were thinking of changing the title at the last minute or something. Oh, maybe. And then you get to the tutorial area. The game just dumped a ton of plot on you and here's where it'll dump most of the mechanics on you. The main combat of the game is driven by uh, doing combo attacks with the whip. You get light attacks on the square button and heavy attacks on the triangle button. You can mix these up how you want at the beginning of the game. Like if you do a heavy attack on the second hit, you'll do the second hit of the heavy attack combo, even if you're doing light attacks before, vice versa. Eventually you'll get actual combos when you put in certain light and heavy attacks in order. I didn't feel like I lost any flexibility from this. It's not really a big deal. The actual specific attacks have specific uses that are more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Additionally, you can block. Heavy attacks will break your block, which opens you up to a follow-up attack. Eventually, if you guard enough times in the game, you'll unlock perfect guard. If you guard at the last second, you'll deflect the attack. We mentioned certain attacks giving you magic before when they flash purple. In this case, if you perfect guard, it doesn't matter what attack it is, it will give you magic points back and also hearts, which are the resources you use for sub-weapons. The Castlevania tradition, mm-hmm. very confusing to new people. The Castlevania that you pick up hearts and your health doesn't go back up. <laughs> you can evade certain attacks with a quick step. Invincible to attacks through the duration of the flip, and there's some recovery at the end when he lands. 
this doesn't work on environmental hazards, otherwise you could skip pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, after you progressed enough, you can do two quick steps in a row. Skill acquisition in this game is another thing it doesn't explain to you. For a while after the game came out, people didn't have a good explanation, but it's actually based on how many enemies you killed, but also how many types of enemies you killed. I feel like I'm learning so much about this game, even though I just played it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too. I looked this up afterwards. I'm like, oh, okay. Guess it's been a while since I've gotten a move, so now it's move getting time. <laughs> but this is a really solid system because there's some benefit to fighting enemies in an area as you're re-exploring it, trying to be thorough, but also to not just sticking you in one area to try and build your power up over and over. So you have a reason to explore more and encounter new types of enemies. The jump is like Devil May Cry, you jump in one direction and your momentum is set, but you can double jump at the start of the game so you can change your momentum one time. Mm. Whip jumps are an interesting one in this game. Oh yeah, oh yeah. As you think, you whip onto a pole or something and Leon will swing from it. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> you whip it, <laughs> the whip becomes rigid and Leon does a jump forward from that point in midair. It's oddly satisfying when you nail it, but you're like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> the first two or three times, I would inevitably fall, but I wound up catching on pretty quickly, which is nice. Yeah, it is fun to nail. can't even think of what you could change it to that people would say, of course. Of course, a whip. Yeah, and then you jump. <laughs> like, Castlevania had swinging from stuff on a whip before mm -hmm. on the Super Nintendo. It's mm -hmm. not like the PS2 can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that they were courageous enough to go through with it, but I have many mm -hmm. questions. <laughs> You have a map. It already shows you some things, but you will additionally get items called marker stones, which are different colors, and you can put them down. So you can remind yourself of places where there was something you noticed, but you couldn't access, and you get a key or an item or something that can solve it later. Did you ever use your marker stones? I did, actually, this time. Oh, nice. I mentioned before how there were doors where you get a key in one level, but it's useful in another. Mm. It tells you what color you know, the door is associated with. If I had the associated stone, I put it down there to remind myself. Nice. Good call. If only I found all the keys. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned using hearts for sub-weapons earlier. This is on a separate button. It has a bunch from the previous titles. Knife, axe, holy water, crystal, cross. Mm. Their basic versions are pretty straightforward. Throw the knife and axe forward. Interestingly, the axe in previous 2D games, its function was you threw it overhead. So you could hit things in the air or just over obstacles more easily. But in this game, I guess in perspective, they thought that was too awkward. So instead, the axe is just a stronger, slower throwing weapon. Did you have any preference as to which sub-weapons you used? Knife almost as much as possible because I think throwing knives are really cool. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. <laughs> How about you? I was partial to the cross, the holy water, as well as the axe. I believe I had an axe combination where... It would be a wide-sweeping move and really get enemies off my back. I particularly like that one. Yeah. So we mentioned that these are basic because you can acquire magic orbs from clearing the areas, and there are two that are optional. These will modify the effects of these sub-weapons. There's a pretty basic one early on where instead of throwing one knife, you'll throw three at once. Mm. But then there's stuff like, hey, instead of the crystal just leaving a crystal where you were as like a sort of trap, just shatter the entire screen and damage everything on screen, and it's really I strong. Love it. love it. Some of them were very overpowered, but I suppose it wound up being balanced. Yeah, they have different heart values depending on the ability. It's weird, though. Some seem kind of redundant. Like, there's one axe ability that'll spread axes out from you 
a wider area, but the one that has less spread is still strong and you're invincible at the startup yes, of the attack. exactly, exactly. Was that the one you were talking about? Yeah, that's the one. The invincibility is so much better, and the one that hits a wider area, there are never so many enemies that you would need that one. I guess it's just difficult to come up with a bunch of distinct uses for the kind of fights you get into in this game. Right. Some of the effects are actually fairly unique, and we'll discuss those. Also, interestingly for this game, you can't use items when you pause the game. Instead, you have to press a button to bring up a real-time menu, which you navigate with the right analog stick, since the camera moves automatically. Both features I really dislike personally, having to do things in real time, as well as the camera angle being static. How do you feel about that? I do like having to get your items out in real time and use them. There's even an item using animation. Right. It's just kind of strange for stuff like armor, stuff you don't really change when you're under time pressure. That's right. way too awkward and the benefit's never high enough to risk. Right. It is pretty cool that they had a radio menu this early on. I tried to look up if there was an earlier implementation of this in games where you do it in real time and use the analog stick to use items. This might be the first. Oh. But it's pretty common now to have quick menus like this. Right. Of all things a game this early did, it's this thing which no one talks about. For sure. There's some similar aspects in like sports games, but it's not handled in quite the same way. For the last bit of the tutorial, this one I thought was pretty interesting. So enemies have resistances to certain types of damage. This is one reason why you might want to use one sub-weapon over another, because even if the knife is quick, if the enemy is resistant to it, it won't do much damage when you do hit them. It gives you an enemy who is resistant to physical damage. The enemy takes magical damage, and it gives you a relic called the Svarog statue, which, when you activate it, leaves a little trail of fire behind you. thought it was kind of dumb as like a magical power to give you. Mm -hmm. It makes you think differently about how you would use it in the first place. I think a lot of people don't, but at least by forcing you to use it, you can see how you might. Yeah. And I did actually end up using it in some circumstances. Correct me if I'm wrong, but does it make you walk a little bit faster? Or am I misremembering? You move about the same speed. Gotcha, gotcha. Just gives me the feeling of moving faster. <laughs> yeah, because you're leaving a fire trail behind yeah. you. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> the enemy does those purple charge attacks, so you can get magic built up. It dies very quickly from this. As we noted, this might be the only relic you have for the entire game. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not terrible at finding secrets in games, and even this time when I played, I remembered how far they go in hiding them. I still didn't get any other relic. Same here, same here. So it's worth figuring out how to use this one. Mm -hmm. Some of the other relics I think are more obviously useful, and I think they should have been easier to find overall, but as for not making them your first one, I agree with that, otherwise you would always use the one that makes you do more damage. <laughs> That's the end of the tutorial as far as the game gives it to you. There's just a few remaining things which the game doesn't explain as much. When you enter certain big rooms in the game, you'll get locked in and have to clear out the enemy encounter in there. You only have to do that one time and then you can pass through afterwards. Yeah, it was really nice because it meant that I could just run away if I needed to. Mm -hmm. I find it really tedious to have rooms relock and you have to redo enemy fights to be able to get through. So if I was just in a hurry to get from point A to point B, I really would avoid enemies most times. So I thought that was a really nice feature for a casual gamer. Additionally, you get items called accessories. You start with two slots for these and you can find an item that gives you three slots. And these give you minor statistical boosts. Your base attack power is 20 and the item that enhances it gives you five more attack power. Yeah, nothing too zany over here. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And there's some that do things like use less MP when you activate a relic, stuff that's useful, but I found that it was pretty situational. And again, these are easier to find than relics, but you still won't find as many. It's just kind of difficult to justify. Like you find a secret and you run all the way over there and it's a ring that makes you more protected against fire. But maybe at this point you already bought a lot of stuff that uses fire. So it's not really worth changing it. For sure. This is one of those things where you might want to swap equipment in real time. But if you're taking that much damage from fire, then the last thing you want to do is try to navigate a menu while you're being shot at with fire. <laughs> and too often I would wind up selecting the wrong item. I don't know if you had a similar experience to me. Because that happened, I think a couple of times I just stopped after like the first two times I tried. I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> For those stats, you have attack power, which determines how strong your whip attacks are. Defense, which looks like a flat number, but is actually a percent of how much damage is reduced. Constitution, which determines how quickly you recover from the two status effects that go away over time. You can use an item to cure them, but they also go away on their own. Mm. Intelligence, which determines the strength of your sub-weapon attacks and luck, which determines the chance of enemies dropping rarer items. Interesting, but this is basically a straightforward action game, and then presenting the numbers to you like it's an RPG is a little... <laughs> I think it sets the wrong expectation. Yeah, for sure. Because you think you'll have more control over these numbers or that they might be altered more throughout the game, but they really aren't. The shotgun in Doom has an attack power value, but you don't really need to know it. This game, it's kind of a similar situation. Mm -hmm. Since you don't get stronger statistically from killing enemies over time, sticking around for rare items is not needed to beat the game. It can give you an edge, but definitively it's faster to not bother trying to go out of your way to get them. Mm. As for the status effects, there's stone and paralysis, which stop your movement, and you have to jiggle the stick to get rid of them. They're pretty similar. I don't know why they did both. Yeah. Then there's Curse, which only lets you do whip attacks, no magic or sub-weapon attacks. And Poison, which I kind of like. You only take one damage from it when it ticks, which is every five seconds or so. But you reel from it when you take that damage. <laughs> so it's actually more of an action game hazard than like a long-term, oh, I'm just losing tons of health and I need to do something about it. Yeah. Also, you save your game in save rooms. There's an item called Memorial Tickets that can return you to the save room. You have to actually save at them. You can touch them and it'll give you your health back. And so I did that once and I'm like, all right, that'll be the last place that the memorial ticket registered me to so I can teleport back there to save some time. And then I went back to the one I actually saved at, which is way more out of the way than the one I touched. Oh no, I didn't know that either. I had always saved out of habit, but that's sad to hear. <laughs> Loading times and saving are pretty fast. I wasn't putting myself in danger between then and now, so I didn't save. <laughs> There's also an item called Magical Tickets. This will take you back to Ronaldo's hut. And with that, you can finally start the game. There's a warp room with teleporters to five different levels. There's a different door you can take that goes down some steps. Instead of music, you hear this deep breathing, which gets louder and louder as you go down. Eventually, you reach a room where there's a save room on one side and a locked door on the other. And there's a grated floor, and you can see something below it. You can tell us the source of the breathing and that it's huge, but you don't have a very good look at it. I didn't notice the breathing. That is so very cool. Yeah, I love that as a tease for this thing. For now, this is all you can do here. Back in the warp room, you can choose any level, but the mostly complete map. Or the first level is right in front of its teleporter, so this is definitively the intended starting point. Mm. And that takes you to the House of Sacred Remains. 
Worth noting, the music here is really good. Probably the best in the game. It's definitely the one I remember the most. There are a lot of tracks in the game that are good, but the amount of time you spend in the level, hearing them repeat often can get kind of grating. Oh yeah. I think it was the sewers, because I was stuck there for a little bit, and I was like, I'm really tired of hearing this song. <laughs> for House of Sacred Remains, that seems to have been understood, because the opening one and a half minutes of it are pretty good. Nice, slow setup. Once you hit the one and a half minute mark, the music kicks in in full, and it's really cool sounding, like to the point that when I was playing this game in college, one of my friends looked up from her laptop and he's like, wow, this is really nice. Nice. So this is a pretty straightforward area, but sometimes the camera is pretty difficult. Oh yeah, I really dislike the camera, I'll be honest with you. I kind of remember it being better, but I guess I was thinking of Devil May Cry 1's camera, where <laughs> that one showed you the room mostly pretty well. Devil May Cry 1 sort of suffered because it was a spin-off of Resident Evil. They sometimes went for dramatic camera angles instead of ones conducive to fighting. Mm -hmm. But then in wide open rooms, you'd have an overhead view and you could see most of the room. The orientation wouldn't be too confusing. In this one, the rooms are square, but the camera just moves in a very strange way that when you enter a room, you find yourself checking the map just so you can be sure you're going in the direction you think you're going. Yes, 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 yes. I had the same problem, and I was wondering if it was like a common occurrence for people. I think there was a setting that you could toggle to have you facing the orientation that you intended to go in when you enter a room, but it took me a long time to think of doing that. Every time I would enter a room, I would have to pull up my menu, reorient myself, make sure that I'm going in the right direction. Probably one of the most confusing things about the game. Yeah. On one hand, Igarashi didn't want to make the levels interconnected because he said it'd be too confusing. And conceptually, I think that was a strange thing to do, but if it had been with this camera, then yeah, I agree as to why it'd be confusing. <laughs> yeah. The sequel has a more interesting, more connected layout, but it also just puts the camera on the ground level behind your character, and it's just much more straightforward. <laughs> yeah. One of the more interesting things this level has is when they gave you the whip jump tutorial, they said you could use it to grab on poles, but also railings. There are upper areas of the level that you can't quite reach by just jumping, but you can whip them and then you'll jump up onto them. There's especially one area where it's at a weird angle. You have to jump and then double jump at the last moment to reorient yourself towards it to whip and get up there. Mm -hmm. And that felt pretty good to get because there are other ways you can get it. There's a relic that makes you run faster, but I mean, if you can find it. <laughs> The upper areas mostly contain money, which is another reason why it's good to start here, because you can just have a secure amount of money to go through the rest of the game with. Mm -hmm. And as far as enemies, they're like skeletons with weapons or zombies who move pretty slow. This also has the flea men from Castlevania, who are very annoying and hop around very fast. Mm -hmm. But their attacks are pretty aggressive, so if you get good at the perfect guard mechanic, this enemy type is actually the best one, because they attack over and over and over. So you can just max out your MP and hearts really quickly off of just one of them. Mm -hmm. Enemies have like a common drop and a rare drop. I saw in the little enemy reference option in the menu that they had a rare item. I'm like, oh, what is it? And so I killed hundreds of them trying to get it. And it was a can of Campbell's tomato soup. Brand name and everything? Not branded. Oh, thank goodness. I was going to be like, how did that happen? <laughs> but still, tomato soup is fascinating. It's a thing in a few Castlevania games and like, I get it as kind of a joke, but also, like, the drop rates are pretty rough, and they can drop anything. 
in Symphony of the Night, there's an enemy that looks just like a silly little enemy, and its super rare drop is the best weapon in the entire game. Yes, yes. <laughs> Knowing that, as a Castlevania fan, you might think anything could drop anything, and it's like, ha ha, enemy has banana. Can you believe it? Why is that there? I'm <laughs> like, I just yeah. <laughs> But then other times they drop useful things, so I don't... What are you trying to tell me here? <laughs> it's just some random fun things you can find in a lot of games directed by Koji Igarashi. Like there's that confession booth in Symphony of the Night, which didn't serve any greater gameplay function, but it was just a fun little weird thing you could interact with. There's a room with a peeping eye enemy, which is like a floating eyeball, and a bunch of skeletons in a triangular formation. When you hit the peeping eye, it'll go flying into the skeletons and make a bowling pin noise. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. I mentioned the music's pretty good in this area, but there's a basement segment which has less good music. It sounds a lot more like intense, but it's pretty repetitive. So it's kind of a bummer when the music for the first part's so good. Mm -hmm. They're rooms with statues that have maiden heads and goat heads. They seem like kind of a random arrangement until I reached a room where there are statues you can whip to flip them around. Mm. You have to remember the alignments from the previous rooms. I ended up looking at it online to save myself some time. <laughs> Fair enough. Also, there are a few rooms in this game that have a laser trap moving back and forth. This one has floors that are made of wood instead of stone, and if you jump on them, they'll break. They don't want you to jump over the laser trap necessarily, or at least not do that exclusively. You have to time when they'll be blocked by the environment so you can run past them. Mm -hmm. And the game mixes this up a few ways. This one's pretty straightforward though. And if you fall through the floor, there's not really a penalty. Failing a jumping puzzle will just land you on a lower floor. It's usually like a potion or something there and some enemies which you can run away from right away. There are some rooms with pits, but they don't hurt you at all. Instead, Leon just screams really loud. Oh, it's great. <laughs> he screams so loud, like he's being horrifically murdered. And then he just appears on the platform totally fine. Like, nothing happened. I'm good. I don't know if you happen to notice, but for one room in particular, you can actually see him land at the bottom most portion of the room. Yep. So it doesn't quite fade out all the way. And I'm like, I see you down there, Leon. What's the problem? Why are you shouting? You're okay. The floor down there is just really scary. It makes you scream. <laughs> He's scared of the dark, I understand. I empathize. <laughs> After all those hazards, there's always a save point right before the boss door, which I really like. Yeah. Saves you so much time. The bosses aren't very complicated, but you might die one or two times, even if you're experienced with action games. The first boss, though, is called the Undead Parasite, and there's no pomp or circumstance. You go in the room and the boss fight is just started. It looks like the enemy is the big worm thing, but it's actually a bunch of points on the ground, little pulsating masses. Mm -hmm. You have to break all of those, and then the main part will come up out of the middle, and that's the part that actually takes damage. There's an enemy that pops up in this room that's like a mud man called the Soulless. They're actually two different colors, and they're counted as separate enemies in the game's little encyclopedia. You can permanently miss the second one. Oh. Killing different enemy types gets you closer to getting new skills, so it can be pretty annoying for that reason. But also, if you're just a completionist and you beat the game, you could say, like, oh, I got the soulless right here. What's this entry next to it? 
and it's not even named differently. It's called the same thing. <laughs> and the enemy is not functionally different in any way. It's just a different color. Wow. Are there any other enemies that have the same problem, or is it just this one? I think this is it for, like, the missable enemy that you can't tell it's different at all. I don't think any other Dang. enemies are missable at all. <laughs> I guess I'm grateful that it's the only one of its kind, but geez. When you beat it, you get the blue orb. We explained the orb system before. It was actually introduced in Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance, also directed by Igarashi. For this one, the standout for me was Divine Cross. Use it with a cross sub-weapon, it'll project a big cross in front of you that damages enemies over time, and it like stays in front of you, it moves with you. How do you feel about Undead Parasite? Remember there was a bit of a learning curve to it? I don't remember particularly struggling with it. How about you? Pretty straightforward for me as well. They push you towards this as the first area, mm -hmm. so it makes sense that the boss isn't too difficult. Right, right. And maybe this was intentional as well, because they front-loaded all that story, is for every other area you beat, you'll get some plot details and like a cutscene associated with it. Mm -hmm. Parasite doesn't talk or anything, so nothing's really revealed by fighting. <laughs> Upon beating every boss, you get a free warp back to Ronaldo's hut. Also, after you quit out of the shop, after you've cleared an area, there'll be a little mini cutscene of Ronaldo saying something, but it's always just like, don't give up. Come to me if you need anything. Like, really basic stuff. I don't know why they threw these in here. There's only one where he says, like, after a big story event, where he says, like, I know things are hard. That one was lessened by all these ones that are not at all important. Yeah. After that, one of the orbs in the main hall lights up. The next area we're going to cover is the Anti-Soul Mysteries Lab. What is an Anti-Soul? What mysteries took place there? I don't know. You just don't know. <laughs> This area has a sort of goth nightclub vibe to the music. Kind of cool, but again, ends up looping a lot. Mm. There are a couple of library rooms, and one of them has a statue blocking the doorway. It reacts to being hit, but it seems like you can't break it, and you have to come back here later. There are also items sitting around called ancient texts that give you hints for secret areas and puzzles. I forgot that these were here but they're actually pretty useful, and I think it's just to get you thinking about how secrets might be hidden in other areas in the game, because other areas don't have items like this. Mm. Also, around this point is when you get the best whip move in any video game, vertical high. Do a couple hits, and then Leon cracks the whip really hard and then does a follow-up hit. Yes. Really satisfying. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of games don't have whips in them, but... Mm. Or games should have whips. Yes. Even among Castlevania games, I know mean, a lot of them are the 2D ones, so you're not doing hot whip combos. Yeah, everyone lost their marbles in Super Castlevania 4. Move the whip around freely. It didn't really <laughs> do anything, it didn't enhance the game at all, but it was fun to kind of make it go a little jangly around a little bit. Very weird looking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a fun enemy in this area. They're kind of difficult to deal with because they tunnel underground, but they're called mm. Evil Stabbers. Yes, I remember these. You know, they got big claws that they will hold up above the ground while they're tunneling around. Also, when you kill them, so much blood comes out. Love it. Just like a ton of blood. Love it. <laughs> it also has the returning red skeletons from previous Castlevania games. And some of them you have abilities that can kill them, and this one you can't. For rooms where you get locked in with them, you just had to have taken them down one time. It doesn't matter if they come back to life after that. So this is a room where the camera's locked from a certain perspective, but there are these pillars in the room, and I was like, oh, I'm going to be clever and check behind the pillar. 
And there are items there. Oh, nice. I'm not sure I ever checked behind them myself. <laughs> but I missed the much more important secret in this room. Oh. You go up some platform, you have to jump towards the camera, and there are more platforms, and there's a big fancy red door. And when you go into the door, there's a secret boss in here. What? I think I must have missed it as well. <laughs> yeah, again, I beat the game without getting any of this category of secret boss. Mm. The Flame Elemental. Big angry demon made of fire, has a great sword and can shoot flame waves at you and is really aggressive. I got the perfect guard by just blocking this boss's attacks for like 10 seconds because it hit me so many times. When you defeat this boss, it forms a flame whip. So you can get this as a new piece of equipment. And again, you have to change through the real-time window. This gives you elemental attacks now. Very cool. Yeah, I think the idea is that the little alchemical symbol in the middle of the room does something with the whip. But it looks like you're just picking up an entirely new whip, so maybe that's what they're doing. <laughs> Let's get rid of this here, family heirloom. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, once you get these, you'll want to use them all the time instead of the default whip. Except in situations like the elemental zombies or something with an elemental resistance. But generally, these will do more damage because they just add fire damage on top of it. Additionally, when you do certain finishers, there'll be a kind of explosion effect, and sometimes Leon shouts, burn! Ooh, very cool. Yeah. And actually, this whip is related to breaking that statue in the library, but it's not enough on its own. It's also a secret I missed where there's a room with a single out-of-place-looking tile, which, if you stand still on it, is secretly an elevator into a tiny little room with an item. Oh! I don't even remember what it is. It's not, like, game-changing or anything, but <laughs> it's always interesting to me when an early game has secrets, but they push the concept very far. Later games in this genre, on the whole, wouldn't hide secrets this way. I guess if you're looking at it with fresh eyes, no basis for, like, rooms normally look like this in an action-adventure game, so of course I go here, here, and here. Right. Instead, you just look at the whole room like it's new, and then you notice these things. The sequel to this, Curse of Darkness, has a system like that as well with stealing items depending on what state the enemy's in. Mm. It pushed what counts as a state an enemy is in so far. It's a great system, and also I think most people will be completely baffled by some of the situations where you'd steal from the enemy. Mm. There's an enemy that picks up pillars in the room and swings them at you, and its steal condition is when it picks up the last pillar in the room to swing at you is when you do the steal move on it. Wow, that's interesting. I would have never guessed that. Nor I. You can reach the end room with the boss in it, but you can't do anything. And there's a big stone with a circular opening in it to put something in. And the stone says, meth. <laughs> I was really taken aback by that the first time I saw it on stream. I just looked at it and I was like, does, it, does that say meth? <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. But then you can find some of those ancient texts I mentioned earlier. And the note says, Meth means death. <laughs> E-meth means life. They had to have known what that sounded like. Yeah. At least the localization team. Oh, for sure. <laughs> this is just a hint as to what to do in that room. There's a room with a timed vertical platforming challenge where like these blocks will shift around. And at the top is a tablet with an E on it. Mm. You have to go back to that room and insert the tablet to give life to the boss, which is the golem. 
So this is a pretty interesting boss. It's pretty tough. I thought it was like a pretty fair challenge, especially because for these fights, the camera actually focuses on the boss. Mm. It's a little easier to keep track of what they're doing. In this case, he does like ground pounds, punches, he can drop rocks on you. He can enter a block state and then he'll follow up a counterattack. And once you drain all his health, he actually has a second form where you can fire one of his fists connected to a chain. I don't remember having any huge problems with it, as with the first boss you mentioned as well. And I was kind of curious, I don't know if you're at all familiar with Haunted Castle. Haunted Castle is an arcade game, a very crappy arcade game, <laughs> um, that is loosely based on Castlevania. It has a golem boss there as well that has a fist that is removed from its body, and I kind of think of that as well. Might be a bit of a stretch to say they're related, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, it's the same franchise, so it's a little... Right. <laughs> Not as much of a stretch as, like, this reminds me of a completely different piece of media where a guy was made of rock. <laughs> True that. Yeah, Haunted Castle's great. It's not a great game, but I enjoy it in its own twisted way. It's very fun to watch someone else play it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not so fun to play it. <laughs> I want to take this moment to ask you about this, because you mentioned that you found the game quite difficult. Yeah. You started with this one for your canon playthrough, but you played other Castlevania games, so... Yes. What gave you the most trouble? I find that I had to just stock up on a lot of items, constantly feeding myself potions, and that kind of detracted me from the goal at hand. Mm. Particularly the later stages and the later enemies. I don't think I am at all skilled enough to play this game without save states. I'm not ashamed to admit, okay, I'm a little <laughs> ashamed to admit it. But it was really, really tough. And unfortunately, I could say the same about some of the classic Venias as well. Those are brutal in their own way, but I feel like the 3D element kind of mess with me a little bit, especially for one of the later fights. I'll bring it up when we talk about it. But the perspective was really something I struggled with because I couldn't tell when the attacks were going to hit me. Now that might have been an emulation problem. Mm, it did look pretty rough. Yeah, it might not have happened on console, but uh, yeah, depth perception is hard. For me, it was just a matter of juggling the items and struggling with that. Also not being too adept at using the blocking mechanic at all. <laughs> I'm much more of like a, let's go fight him and see what happens and ultimately die and keep dying. And it's not a great strategy. <laughs> I played this after I played Devil May Cry 1. Devil May Cry 1 on normal, like I mentioned, is way harder than this game. So for me, this was easier Devil May Cry 1. Ah. And the controls are a little easier to work with. Mm -hmm. Devil May Cry 1 has an easy mode, but then it has a problem where it's so much easier than normal mode that it has none of the appeal of the game at all. Right, right. Not that I think there's no reason to play Devil May Cry 1 on easy if you just want to mm -hmm. see through the game or anything, but it forces you into like the automatic mode where you can't do your own combos, it just does them automatically for you. Oh, I see. Whereas this one, you know, it's a lower difficulty, but it's much more reasonable and you still get control. Combat doesn't work quite the same as Devil May Cry, where you modifying inputs, holding forward or back or anything like that, but the way you unlock moves, it ends up being about as free. Do this combo with the finisher, but later you'll get a move that lets you jump to the finisher move right away, which chains into another move if you want. Right. I think of Lament of Innocence as a way to get the appeal of Devil May Cry 1 without as much difficulty. Yeah, granted, I've not played too much Devil May Cry 1, and it's certainly been a very long time, but I can see what you mean. <laughs> I was playing the Switch version recently, and I'm oh. still pretty bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> no shame. No shame in that. <laughs> and also, you mentioned save state. 
I used to not play games with save states when I did emulation. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, that's not the way it was made. I'm not going to do it that way. And then in college, I watched a friend play Mega Man through emulation. And he would save state in between successfully dodging a boss's attack. And he finished the game. So after that, I'm like, I guess I play the game in a more true way. But my friend actually has seen the entirety of these games. So am I really <laughs> so good? It's like, who's really winning here? <laughs> But I, I definitely hear you. I used to be the type that I was like, nope, no save states ever. But as I was streaming at the time, I realized very quickly, wow, this is going to be terribly dull for people <laughs> watching me die constantly. And I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated as well at how poorly I'm doing. So I was like, you know what? Gotta bite the bullet. Just gotta do save states. I never claim to be good at video games. If anyone's watching my content, <laughs> they know that. <laughs> so it's just laying it all out there. For beating this boss, you get the red orb of which the notable moves are, I mentioned the triple throwing knife attack with the dagger, as well as Spiral Axe, the move where you're invincible on startup and it sends axes flying everywhere. And those are so good that I don't remember what the other ones are. <laughs> They're forgettable. <laughs> I mean, even triple daggers probably not a note for a lot of people, but for me, I'm like, oh, three throwing knives? Yeah. Three times as cool as one throwing knife? <laughs> <laughs> the next area is Garden Forgotten by Time. Which stood out to me because the music sounds the most like music from Symphony of the Night. Mm-hmm. This area also has the hardest whip jump in it because the grapple points for those areas with the whip jumps are moving. Fun, fun, fun. How many tries did this take you? Do you remember? I think I repressed it. <laughs> I mean that seriously. I think, I think it took a lot more than I care to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you? Twenty. Ooh. Okay, now I don't feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you have to count the amount of times where I messed up the very first part and <laughs> had to start over. Yeah. And then when you get to the end and have to do it, they're at differing heights. So you might think you need to get a different height. It's the maximum height is what you need to time it for. Mm. That's it. That's all that matters because you can't get any more height after that. Also, you had to have saved your double jump to hit the lever at the end. So if you, like me, instinctually double jump for any jump in a game once you have it, even when you don't need it, (laughs) you will get to the end and not be able to do it. I'm the same way. (laughs) It's kind of interesting. I wonder if there's a... It just feels nice, actually. That's probably why people do it all the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, there are some secret areas which you can only access by using the man-eating plant enemies as platforms. They're really big and pretty imposing looking. Yeah. You do have to stand on them to hit their weak point, but I guess it just didn't click with me that standing on them would be a literal jumping off point to finding secrets. Yeah, I mean, I I would have never thought of that. The way I compile notes for the show is I play through and I'll do some notes then, but then I watch like a playthrough usually to take notes. Mm -hmm. And this one, I saw them just not killing a man-eating plant in a room and like having it follow them over to a corner. I'm like, what are they doing? And then it opened up and they jumped on and then jumped onto a platform out of view of the camera. Really cool, but also makes me wonder if this is the entire reason why the camera is bad is because they were worried about the secrets showing up. Oh, maybe. Then I don't know how to feel about it. (laughs) That's a good point, actually. If they'd use a sort of behind-the-back camera, then they could just rely on the fact that most people don't look up in games. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a hidden statue you can use to get to an upper area. This is one of the elemental bosses I actually didn't find. The walk-up is very dramatic. You're like running up a big staircase and there's a thunderstorm happening outside that's like lighting up the whole tower you're in. 
kind of surprising that they did it for this and not the run-up to the final boss. Yeah, for sure. I'd be curious to see this. I'll have to look it up afterwards. When you get here, you fight the Thunder Elemental, who fights with a double-ended sword, and they do shockwaves, and they can summon lightning strikes. I did think it was interesting that there's a ring of thunder you can find in this area on your first go-through, which would help you with this fight a lot. Oh. One of those cases where it's actually worth it to equip something like this. <laughs> this is early enough that you probably don't have so many accessories that it's not worth giving up a slot for the ring. You get the thunder whip. This is one of the whips I missed. But I also felt like most enemies were either weak to fire or ice. Like, I know there are enemies that are weak to thunder. Mm -hmm. I never really ran into a situation where that was the specific weakness I lacked. And I was like, this is what's making this fight hard for me. Mm -hmm. Also, when you're outside, it took me a while to realize this. Like, I thought the area just looked kind of weirdly hazy. But if you look, it's actually rain. Oh. Yeah, I think it maybe just is an issue that on a modern display the effect gets messed up yeah i played this on a television and i remembered it looking a lot better with the crt display and i think this is one of those games that really benefits yeah that's come around more recently where people like to show off games that were made for crt televisions to say like this is what's really supposed to look like and some of those are cool sometimes people show a thing that looks bad without crt and then on CRT, it also looks bad because the art's just not good in the first place. And like, whoa, it looks so good. I'm like, oh, let's slow down there, buddy. This doesn't, yeah, this doesn't yeah. make everything look good. I do follow a Twitter that does that, and it's been really insightful to see a lot of the games that I, I have been emulating um, that I didn't have access to to play on a CRT at the time. Mm -hmm. It seems really gorgeous. Symphony of the Night was one of them with the sprite work. Yeah. Dracula's face in particular. He's got a red dot in the middle of his eyes, so if you're seeing it through the emulation, you're like, well, that seems very obviously squarish. Then if you see it through a CRT, you can see the whole eye is illuminated in red. It's very cool. And this game, you know, obviously they don't use single pixel tricks, but right. the squareness of the rooms is somewhat offset. And there are just certain things about games at lower resolution. Like on the PS2, on any low resolution game, the sort of way the pixels on the edges can shift around. It's called shimmering, mm. and it's generally considered a downside, but I always thought it kind of looked good for giving something the effect of like a dusty floor. Oh, interesting. It's an old dusty castle. <laughs> like, that's really fitting. Yeah, for sure. Also around this point, you can unlock the skill Falcon Claw, which is a cool dive kick where you just press jump one more time after double jumping. You will bounce off enemies you hit with it, and you can just keep mashing jump to kick them like four or five times before you hit the ground. I remember this one. I actually ended up using it more, though, to just get around rooms quickly. Like if I was on an upper level and there was just a set of stairs, I'd just dive kick down the stairs. Nice. In the garden areas, there have been a lot of stone statues that are very lifelike. And as always, this means that there's something that's petrifying people. But Leon is surprised by this when you get to the boss, who is Medusa. Mm -hmm. You may have seen her in other media, as you know, like she's got like snake leg and like a woman's body, something like that. Not this time. <laughs> this time she's a huge head. <laughs> it's quite imposing. And I will say, though, I really like the details. She's got a snake mouth as well, and you can see the inner, I assume they're gums, mm -hmm. whenever she speaks, and she's got like four sets of teeth. It's really, really cool. One of my favorite designs for a boss, honestly. Mm -hmm. Though the uh, the attacks are less desirable, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you get close, she can punch you with her hair snakes. 
funny conceptually and visually. (laughs) She can also roll at you because she's a big round head and run you over. Mm -hmm. Big old ball. (laughs) And she can, of course, fire a petrifying beam at you. I didn't have too much trouble with this fight, but it is one of those fights where like her rolling attack can hit you a little wider than it looks like. Once you're familiar, it's a fun spectacle. Yeah. When you beat her, she says that she realizes that Ronaldo's whip is stronger than it was the last time she faced someone who was using this whip and wonders if it's complete. When you get teleported back to Ronaldo, Leon asks him about it and Ronaldo says it's because you're stronger than I am when I used it. But then he asks Leon to not think about making it any stronger. No, it's not complete, but don't even think about it. A little bit suspicious. <laughs> also, for being the boss, you get the purple orb, and that gives you the crystal ability I talked about earlier, Shatter Plane, where you shatter the entire screen and damage everyone on it. Really strong, uses a lot of hearts, but goes off really fast. The fourth of the five levels is the Ghostly Theater. This one has a track that's like mostly laid back and I kind of like as like a slow like waltz but then it has a really bombastic part in it that every time you hear it I'm just like I'm not doing anything right now this is a bad time (laughs) (laughs) this has the widest floors of the entire game like there's two levels to this area It's huge. Yes, unfortunately. Unfortunately, and I remember being on one level and thinking, the boss fight's gonna be on the second level. And then second-guessing myself because they have two very similar-looking rooms. Yeah. And I wondered, after completing the boss, if I had missed something on the other floor. We might be able to get into that later, but I don't know if you happen to see anything that I could have missed, but I definitely felt like I was seeing double. Yeah, the first floor, too, it's got like a mirrored layout for both sides, and they don't connect on the opposite ends, and they have two different ways to get to the second floor. Mm -hmm. I do think you need to use both to get access to certain rooms. Really quite time-consuming, and it's probably the most it stands out that you do run around for a long time in this game, which can cut down on the action. There's an interesting puzzle room in here also, where there's a turret that's just firing rocks at you. (laughs) It's very loud. Yes, actually, I do remember now. Sorry, it took me a moment to realize what you were talking about. I do remember, because I was in another room, and I was like, what is that noise? And then it was on the lower floor. It'll make a mark where you are and then fire a rock really quickly. The idea is that there are two different colors of statues in here. You have to get the turret to shoot all the statues of one color, and it'll unlock one of two doors. There's one of these shadowy rooms. We mentioned earlier the rooms where you fall and you can see Leon just standing on the dark floor below. The challenge of these rooms is you can't entirely see the platforms you have to jump to. Often you just kind of have to walk to the edge of a platform and see what you can see. The times this room shows up, there's one where you can walk to the edge and there's an obvious route for where you're supposed to go, and that door will take you to a required item. In this case, you get the curtain time bell, but there's also a separate way you can go that has an extra item. So there's a few different battles in here, like there's a room with two Cyclopes in them. They're really big and take up a lot of the room space, so it can be pretty tough to fight them. When you unlock the higher difficulty, there are three of them in the room. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty tough. I had some problems avoiding damage in here. Like, it's possible. I'll say this about this game. It's not easy, but it is reasonable with enough practice to beat this game without taking damage. Mm -hmm which is really saying something because for a lot of PS2 action adventures, 
it's basically impossible. Right. It is possible, but you actually have to do really weird counterintuitive stuff. And so generally, that's why you just get stocked with healing items, because they're like, oh, you can't dodge everything, so I don't know, do your best. Just drink some medicine when you get hurt. <laughs> and this game, they're definitely cheap shots, but it's usually the case that it's a big enemy with a long-reaching attack that's outside the camera. So you might hear like a charge-up noise for their big move, but you won't know where it's coming from. But now that you have the curtain time bell, the boss room's another one where you can access it right away, but you can't do anything, it's a little stage. Confusingly, it says to ring the bell for the curtain to rise on the stage, so I walked on the stage and kept ringing the bell and nothing happens. Me too. <laughs> yeah, because that's not what you're supposed to do. Exactly. The curtain's already up. <laughs> so you have to stand where the seats are and ring the bell, and then you'll start the boss fight against the succubus. Oh yes, the succubus. She's in the guise of Sarah, actually. And this is the first time you'll see Sarah's in-game character model. She looks a little dead-eyed. A little worn for wear, if you were. <laughs> <laughs> Does she always look like this? I mean, Leon's reacting sort of normally, I guess. You know, he's a surprise to see her. Mm -hmm. But um, you have got to hear her level of overacting. <laughs> Who are you? Oh, my. Too bad. And I thought this would work so well. <laughs> I was careless. It was obvious that it wouldn't be so easy. I was going to let you die without any suffering, because I liked the way you looked. Well... That's just too bad. So how do you feel about the succubus fight? I struggled with it. It was one of the ones I struggled with a lot because of the vines coming out of the ground. But I thought the concept itself was really neat. They throw a succubus in every Castlevania game, mm -hmm. or rather, I should say the later Castlevania games. I mean, her design was gorgeous. And I know that her design was the inspiration for the later installments of the Pachinko games. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pachinko games? Yeah, yeah. What they ended up doing with like all of Konami's franchises, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's gorgeous models, but um, kind of an odd sort of take on a beloved franchise. So they definitely use her design from this game for that end. She looks great. The acting is a lot, as I'm sure you heard. <laughs> The fight was okay. I did struggle with it a little bit and felt very accomplished when it was done. How about you? Yeah, I had some trouble with it. I mean, because the ground vine she summons can be pretty sudden, and then they're also seeking you. Like, you generally don't expect both to happen. It's like, please, no, I've had enough. <laughs> and then she also does like a tornado spin attack. The sunflowers she summons are set traps that can paralyze you. Then at the end, she splits into multiple copies of herself. <sighs> It's kind of interesting. I, I don't think a lot of bosses have unique low health behaviors actually in this. I don't think that anyone else, apart from the golem having a second health bar, react the same way. Yeah. So when you beat her, she regrets not trying to fight you in Sarah's form. And then she mentions the old man and his daughter. You go back to Ronaldo's hut, and this is supposed to be like a sad, dramatic story. But the music cues, like the main music in the game, I think is pretty good. The cutscene music is really weird. Yeah. I don't know what you've heard, but you don't need to know anymore. 
Ronaldo, you've helped me so much. The least I can do for you is listen to your story and support you in your suffering. Very well. I'll tell you. It was five years ago. A cold night, the full moon. I returned home from picking herbs necessary for the secret arts. And what greeted me was a sea of steaming blood. And at the center of it were the bodies of my wife and son. I could not believe my eyes. My daughter was there, laughing. Blood dripping from her mouth. She was turned into a vampire? That's right. By Walter. My daughter went out a window without even looking at me. When I recovered, I built the whip with alchemy. Then... I searched for her. I see. I've heard enough. So this is what you meant when you said you owed him. I challenged Walter, but nothing came of it. That's why I live here and help those who wish to fight him. I never would have guessed... Forget everything I just said. Think only of yourself now. He's not an opponent you can beat while distracted. No. You're wrong. What do you mean? The force of your grief can only make me stronger. Thank you. I am grateful. I ended up just laughing a lot through this story, which I don't think was the developer's intention. Unfortunate, because Ronaldo deserves more. But yeah, mm -hmm. I definitely agree with you there. I will say, it does sound like he was a lot more screwed from the start. Maybe this is earlier in Walter's game. Now he gives more leeway so that there's more time to mess with people. Mm -hmm. Also, for beating the boss, you get the yellow orb. Standout for this one is if you use it with the axe, you get the spirit ripper where you summon three shurikens that hover around you and then go flying at enemies. Cool. And you can keep moving while they're out. One of those abilities it actually works pretty differently for the axe, too. So that's one of the upsides of the orbs. And since the orbs are on the radio menu, it's a little easier to switch them in the heat of combat. Mm, true. And now for the final level, the Dark Palace of Waterfalls. I know you mentioned having some annoyances with hearing the music so much. Yes. <laughs> but I do think it's probably the smoothest jam. That's a fair point. I feel like water's just one of those instant wins for atmosphere you can do, like how running water or rain. Yeah. Both in terms of audio and visuals, like it's kind of relaxing, even though you're killing 500 fishmen. <laughs> <laughs> and in one of those areas, there's an enemy called an armor knight with a huge flail. And there's a wall with a crack in it. I didn't think to do this when I played the first time. Because I'm just like, oh, it's a wall. I get abilities in this game. I'll get something to break it. No, you got to have him attack it with the flail. Mm. There's also a room in this area that's like a carved out stone cave with a bunch of platforms on different levels. 
quite a few tricky whip jumps you can do in here, and you have to do some to get to an upper door to reach one secret area. But if you actually run past that platform and jump, you can see an area where you have to do even trickier whip jumps. I didn't notice this until I came back to this room two or three times later, mm -hmm. where I noticed that there was an open space on the map. It turns out that actually doing this will take you to the final elemental boss, the Frost Elemental. This one fights with arm blades where it does really slow attacks, but it also can fire lasers at you that paralyze you. I guess they didn't have a status where you get frozen. Yeah, next best thing. <laughs> Pretty easy boss by comparison, it's just not as aggressive as the other ones. For this you get the Ice Whip. Once you do finishes with this one, Leon will say freeze. Very cool. Now that you have the Ice and Fire Whips, you can go back to the Anti-Soul Mysteries Lab, or that statue. There's a note that says you need to hit it with drastic temperature changes, so you need to use the finisher on one whip and then switch to the other one quickly and hit it again, and it will shatter. And behind that statue is the White Orb. The one that stood out for me is for the cross you get Agnea, where Leon holds his fist up and it just fires chain lightning. Oh, really cool. It wasn't very efficient, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care, it's cool. Yeah, as long as it's cool looking. The weird side minigame thing in this area is very weird. It'll look like the side rooms where there's one item on a little pedestal, mm -hmm. but then against the wall you see a big open arch doorway with a skull on top. <laughs> Go in there, you get to do the skeleton ride minigame. It sounds completely new to me. <laughs> what happens in the skeleton ride minigame? You're on a little platform that travels on a rail. Are you familiar with the Sonic 2 like, special stage and the little half pipe? Yes. It's like that. There are coins along the path, but also spike trap skulls, and you can collect the coins. It's not very much money, actually, but the idea is that if you can collect all the coins, an item will appear at the end. You get an accessory for one of them and a stat increase for the other. It's really hard, so I didn't do it, and you have to run all the way back up yourself. Oh no! Because <laughs> it deposits you on a lower floor. Very weird. I guess Walter just likes the carnival. <laughs> There are a few areas that are blocked by waterfalls and you need to find a lever to deactivate it. Instead of a visual, which they do for when you unlock doors over time, it just tells you that a waterfall has been blocked off. A little text box. Did this cause you confusion? Because it caused me confusion. It absolutely caused me very <laughs> much confusion. I was actually just going to mention that. I was like, okay, where is this? What's happening? <laughs> I believe there was one room I was going in where I could only see it from a certain angle and I thought that was the room it was referring to but no, I was mistaken, it was another room. So that was very confusing for me as well. I really needed those visual cues. The skeleton ride actually deposited me in one of those rooms, so I was kind of there out of order. Mm. So once I said you deactivated a waterfall, I'm like, there are waterfalls that deactivate? <laughs> okay, I guess that's good. Mm -hmm. And then I reached a room where there was a place that looked like it was blocked by a waterfall, I could kind of see the path it would take. But I couldn't reach another part of that room and thought, oh no, I deactivated the waterfall too soon. I need to go back and flip the switch again. So I went back up and I did the skeleton ride. And then it turns out that you can't hit the switch again because that's not a thing that happens. You had to get to the other part of that room doing another thing. Yeah, that's the room I was referring to. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that I wasn't the only one that thought, oh, is this the waterfall? 
they can render a waterfall stopping, I think. <laughs> I really don't get why they did this. <laughs> that would be so helpful. Normally I'd say, oh, because they ran out of time, but they said specifically that they finished the game ahead of schedule, so I don't know. Right? That means that was their plan the entire time. <laughs> I loop it back to what we were talking about at the very beginning with the intro. If mm -hmm. you had extra time, could you have considered please do something more interesting with the intro apart from scrolling text? No, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess the TV games work like that, but yeah, they're on the Game Boy Advance. You can't fit an intro on that. <laughs> you can barely fit the game on there. Right? They put like one song with some choir samples on the title screen of Circle of the Moon. They gave up so much to put that on there. Wow. Also, when you get near the end of this area, there's an interesting sub-boss, a shadow clone of Leon called the Doppelganger. How do you like this fight? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those brutal ones. I believe this happened on stream when I first played it many years ago. When I enter this room, sometimes my emulator will um, crash when I enter <laughs> these rooms with these kind of intro scenes. So I saw the doppelganger staring at me mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, he's holding eye contact with me for a very long time. <laughs> oh, I don't think this is right anymore. <laughs> Oh, like the music kept going, but it just didn't like leave the yeah. That's really Exactly, funny. exactly. So yeah, don't have fond memories of the doppelganger fight. How about you? I'm kind of primed to like fighting equals in games like this, but he's really aggressive. Yeah. He has a whip, so he has the same range advantage you do, but he, as the computer, knows when he's in the perfect range to start doing it. <laughs> he can also do quick steps. Sometimes he'll be lined up for a hit and then he's like, too bad. <laughs> So, not quite as good as other rival fights. Perhaps one of the harder times to reasonably dodge all the attacks. Sub-weapons can be a little effective on him, like it's easier to catch him with sub-weapons. They don't do a ton of damage, I don't remember which one they're weak to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in crazy mode, the hardest difficulty, you fight two doppelgangers at the same time. Yeah, it is on crazy mode. I watched a video of that fight, you know, I said reasonable to do this, not getting hit. Not on crazy mode. No. Then you have to do the weird stuff that you had to do in less good games to avoid getting hit, where you run in circles for a really, really long time waiting for an opening <laughs> that's guaranteed safe. Right. There aren't a lot because they're not designed to give you openings specifically. <laughs> they just kind of attack whenever. And also they have this attack where they dash at you and leave a fire trail. So when there's one of them, it can be pretty tough because like sometimes you want to avoid the attack, but then you dodge into the fire trail and still get hit. When there's two of them, well, I didn't play this game on crazy mode and I never will, is my answer to that. Likewise, same here. <laughs> he just jumps into the waterway and disappears, actually, you don't kill him. The actual boss of this area is the character mm -hmm. for non-main characters in this game. Leon walks into this room, prison cell, and realizes as he's talking to this prisoner that they're also a vampire, and the exchange here is so dramatic. It is so over the top. This feeling. Are you a vampire? That's right. human. Why is a vampire locked away here? Shut up! Damn Walter. I would have won were it not for his ebony stone. Ebony stone? Understand that Joaquim is supposed to be hot? <laughs> they chose him to put on the soundtrack. 
holding a sword very like affectionately, mm-hmm. not in his outfit that he has in this. And actually, very interestingly, he looks very similar to the main character of the next game. Yes. They took this character and added more stuff to him, and that's Hector. Yes. I'm really surprised they made him look so similar. I completely agree. I recall before I played these two games, I saw art of the two of them, and I was like, are these the same character? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's a pretty interesting boss fight. He has floating swords he attacks you with and also summons swords from the ground. And if you try to hit him, you won't do any damage. You have to destroy these orbs in the corners of his room, and then he's open to being hit. For me, the orbs in the corners were not obvious at all. Did you notice them right away? You know, I don't remember what it was like the first time. I felt like I didn't have too much trouble with him, but I think I attacked him and noticed I wasn't doing any damage. And so I immediately tried to do something else, like look around the room. Very logical. Meanwhile, I'm like throwing things at him. I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> Not a strong gamer, as I've mentioned before. <laughs> Once you do, he's a lot easier to stun, and you can basically just keep wailing on him until his barrier comes back up and you have to break the orbs again. And the fight doesn't change much more from that point. When you defeat him, he bemoans that he could have defeated Walter if he possessed the Crimson Stone. When you go back to Ronaldo, he explains that all alchemists seek to create what's known as the Philosopher's Stone that grants eternal life, but no one's achieved it yet. The Ebony and Crimson Stones were created by accident in pursuit of this. The Ebony Stone causes night to be eternal, so Walter is eternally at full power. Meanwhile, the Crimson Stone can convert the life of a vampire into power, and so Leon thinks, okay, I could use this then. But Ronaldo says that you can't use the Crimson Stone without taking on the Curse of the Vampire. Even though both stones were thought to be lost, since the Ebony Stone resurfaced as Leon notices, it's possible that the Crimson Stone might, but Ronaldo hopes it doesn't. And that means it will. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this character. To me, it seems like there was so much potential there. I wanted to know more about his relationship with Walter and what was the beef with Mm. them. (laughs) But I feel like the game didn't give me enough. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think they assumed you would only want a little information about him to set up the boss fight. I think it's just a weird situation where Castlevania Symphony of the Night had come out and had more story going on and people liked that, but they sort of reverted to a mean, which is kind of strange considering the opening throws so much exposition at you. Oh yeah. For all the bosses, two of them don't even talk. I think I said earlier that only one of them doesn't, but yeah, the golem also doesn't have any dialogue or revelations afterwards. And Joachim was treated more as a means to an end for talking about the stones for the ending of the game. Yeah versus talking about the world of vampires, because you don't also get to hear a lot in Castlevania overall about vampires vying for power. Yeah. Usually, they're all working for Dracula. I think there's Ulrochs, the one who's like locked away in Symphony of the Night. I'm really curious about, like, well, if it's a vampire of similar, perhaps not equal power, like, what is the story behind all of that? Like, why is he locked away mm-hmm. in such a dark place? How long has he been there? I've really found myself hungry to learn more about this character who was just honestly forgotten about after this one encounter. We just need a hot guy to put on the soundtrack (laughs) who sounds like a nerd for some reason. Yes. (laughs) 
now that you've defeated him, you acquire the green orb. There are other abilities that are useful with sub-weapons, but with the axe you get high speed edge. And high speed edge has you dash forward with a slashing attack very fast. You can use it to close distances really quickly or evade attacks that you would not be able to evade if you use the quick step. Mm. I remember when I watched your stream archives and you were having some trouble with one of the boss fights. <laughs> Someone in your chat's like, it looks like they're doing some dash attack thing. I don't know what that is. And I was just like, oh, no. If I was there, I could have told you what that is. <laughs> you had access to it. No. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's sad. To, I'm learning so much from just having this discussion with you. But there is so much that I could have been doing to optimize my game. There's so many secrets that I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is in part due to the fact that I play through games pretty quickly. I'm mm -hmm. kind of a linear player. I don't try to look for secrets too in-depth, mm -hmm. and that's a fault on me. But at the same time, I feel like the game didn't tell me enough to be able to find these things more easily and, and therefore make my, my gaming experience much easier. And now this could all be excuses, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> I wish you were there in my stream to tell me how to do things. <laughs> Let's go back like four years and so make that happen. <laughs> For me, whenever I got a new one, I'd try to find weapons and then like do the move with them to see what they did. Mm -hmm. We're actually about to reach a point in the game where you get to a room that has all the sub-weapons in it, so you can just try them out with the orbs right away. It's kind of difficult because a candle containing a sub-weapon could be pretty distant from another one. Absolutely. And I have a another hindrance that was probably not that big of a deal, but I was really trying to conserve hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, because I found it incredibly tedious to hit the flame statues mm -hmm. to get more hearts. So I was like, oh, I could try this new move, but I won't. <laughs> yeah. In Castlevania, the statues that contain items are just sort of in your way, the little candles. You can jump and then you'll whip at a candle, and maybe you can hit that and a candle on the ground on your way down, and the item will fall from the upper candle, and you just walk straight forward. Like, you can keep going. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of do that in this. Like, if you jump at a candle whip at it, and then when you land, it'll be there and you can just keep running. But it's kind of awkward timing, and all the candles are placed at the sides of the room. Yeah. I guess it's nice that they're not in the way, but it also means you have to go out of your way to get hearts again. The most effective means I found to get it was when I was using the cross move that would have many crosses encircle you. Mm -hmm. I found that that was the best way to just, like, farm hearts. <laughs> I also used a lot of hearts, so who's really winning? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of strange. It's like, I need to use my ultimate area hitting attack <laughs> just to break stuff to get items it's not combat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is an item that lets you break candles automatically when you run into them you have to be on new game plus though to use it and the thing is the time between the candle breaking and the heart falling out of it is long enough that if you just run straight through the candle it'll break and you'll be too far away from the heart to pick it up oh the worst so you have to slow down anyway <laughs> to do it yeah don't love that about the game heart farming in particular Honestly, that's why I ended up finding out the trick with the Fleeman to do perfect guard against them. Then you get hearts and MP super fast. Yeah. I can understand why they don't let you do it all the time. In the Mega Man X4 episode, I mentioned that giving you unlimited basic special weapon attacks doesn't break the game because they have specific use cases. But in this, I mean, if you can just spiral axe everybody all the time, there's no video game anymore. <laughs> true. Very true. Now that you have all the orbs, you can open the door, and Leon finally meets Walter Bernhard face-to-face. -face. And I forget what his voice actor is credited as, but guess what? It's actually Jameson Price again, baby! Three for three! <laughs> yes, he is fantastic. It's overdone, but it needs to be overdone. 
He's got this wonderful way of speaking and adding all of this power to his words. Mm -hmm. I super love his performance in this, even if it does come across as super overdone. He's got this fancy red armor. He's got a cape on, but at the end of the cutscene, when he turns away from you, he also has a waist cape under that cape. The level of extra. I look at that man and I'm like, I want this costume. Mm -hmm. It would look fantastic. <laughs> He's done a lot of awful things to Leon. Follow me in hand. Stay winning, queen. <laughs> Keep it up. <laughs> when Leon meets him, he does a little magic cape trick to reveal Sarah. And it turns out Sarah actually does look kind of dead-eyed. I mean... She's in a trance this time, but this is what she looks like, actually. It wasn't the succubus not doing a good imitation. Yeah, and I do wonder, we were talking about CRTs before, I wonder if she would look a little better if we saw her through a CRT, but I have a feeling, maybe not. I don't think so. I don't think anything could save her. <laughs> Leon tries attacking Walter, and this happens. Well, that whip is Ronaldo's, is it? It can't be. My attack doesn't work! I see. It's just as that knight said. Very well. You've made it this far. I'll return her as a reward. I'll be in the throne room on the highest floor. I look forward to you making it there alive. <laughs> <laughs> Leon takes Sarah back to Ronaldo's cabin, and because Sarah has not had a bad enough time already, on the way there, she suddenly gets electrocuted and passes out. Ronaldo reveals that Sarah was harmed by the barrier around Ronaldo's cabin, which he uses to keep out vampires. This is a great revelation, but then it does a very funny dramatic zoom on Leon's face. <laughs> It turns out that, yes, Sarah's been bitten. Leon does not accept this, and he wants to know how he can undo it. The only way to reverse it would be to defeat the vampire that bit her, and as we just saw, Leon cannot harm Walter. Ronaldo at last explains how to complete the whip. It is as I thought then. It didn't even work for you. Isn't there another way? Well, there is, but... Tell me, I'll do anything! Then let me ask you this. Can you kill that girl? What are you saying? If you make the whip complete, you can destroy him. But in order to do that, you need a tainted soul. Sarah overhears this conversation and runs off. Leon chases after her, and then she says that she can feel herself changing. Even if he could somehow find a way to defeat Walter, it would not happen before she turns into a vampire. Mm -hmm. If my soul can save others, then I won't die in vain. I do not want anyone else to suffer my fate. Why? Please, if you still love me, please grant me my final wish. I cannot. You dishonor yourself, Leon. How do you think Sarah feels? I know, Ronaldo. I do know. Ronaldo. What must I do? So. You've decided. You must enter into a blood covenant with Sarah's soul. 
Focus your spirit on Sarah. All becomes one in infinity. The tainted soul joins his. Undesired and cursed soul. His blood accepts your hatred. For the power to slay your kind. Now, use the whip against Sarah. I swear to you, no more will suffer your fate. She's had a bad enough day already, and now she has to turn into a whip. Yeah, poor Sarah. <laughs> the regular whip of alchemy in your inventory is replaced with the vampire killer. Ronaldo says he knew about this ceremony because. You read about it in the Krampus family's Book of Alchemy. I mean, obviously, it's interesting for the fact that this is a thing that Matthias possibly also knew about. And also, the implication is that this had to have been written down because they knew it worked, which means there's something else like this out there, like the Vampire Killer. Yeah. Which the franchise doesn't follow up on, but I think is an interesting detail. Yeah, for sure. The default attack power is 20, and with the Vampire Killer, it goes up to 40. Maybe a couple enemies resist it, but basically it's just a full attack power upgrade that's just non-conditional. If you have elemental whips, they can still do more damage to the things that are weak to them, but otherwise, if you didn't find any of them, then you still get an upgrade. I thought it was a really, really interesting plot point. As upset as I am about Legends being redacted for this, I think it's a really neat take on the whole story, and I appreciate that it's something so heartfelt in it, and it's not just, you know, a family heirloom, it's something greater, it's something deeper. It's got the soul of somebody who has been wronged, a soul of somebody who was turned and is agreeing to fight their own kind at that point. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really interesting. I wish I had seen more about Leon and Sarah's relationship Yeah, preceding this so I could get behind it even more. But of course, there's only so much that you can cram into a game. It's very tragic, mm -hmm. and I thought it was a really, really cool plot point. How'd you find it? I remember the first time I played it, I'd already heard some people's opinions of it by that point, that it was convoluted. And not that it isn't, but it also then makes sense why there aren't a lot of weapons like this all the time. For sure. I think especially now knowing the full details of what the origin was in Legends, it's definitely more interesting than that. There's definitely more you can do with it other than someone was special one day. <laughs> True. Maybe they could have also put more detail in about Sarah instead of talking about how Matthias is literate. I don't know. <laughs> like, that didn't come up, and this definitely was important to the plot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can now enter that last area past where you rescued Sarah. The Pagoda of the Misty Moon. This area contains the most difficult variants of enemies you fought already. There aren't a lot of really new ones here. The standout is when you get to an area right before you reach the second floor, where the doppelganger makes his return. How did you like Doppelganger 2? I think I repressed it just as much, if not more, than the first one, or I might be mistaking the two. One of them was incredibly difficult, and I did not have a fun time. How did you like it? This one I actually liked better than Doppelganger 1. Nice! In part because, instead of using a whip, he has this sick hand-to-hand -hand moveset. Didn't like that I couldn't do it. <laughs> part of me imagines just like a different take on this game, 
if they kept the sort of collecting other weapons aspect from previous Castlevanias, it could be like, oh, the square buttons, your weapon attacks, your cool hand-to-hand -hand moves, mm -hmm. and then triangles, your whip, because it's the slower, more long-reaching weapon. Like, I like the moveset for the whip, yeah. but I think that would be a good way to incorporate it, because there are other Castlevania games where you can get whips, but then you can get other types of weapons. Oftentimes, the whip isn't the best one, which is very weird to think about for the series. Yeah. I just think like if you had a weapon, like there were still upgrades for it that you can get across the game, but then you could still collect weapons so you get some more variety. That would be a really fun combination. Maybe like you can whip grab and you can pull them in and do a sword slash, or maybe there's something you do if you have a spear and a whip. That would be super cool. There's a lot of potential there. Yeah. They did something like that in not the sequel to this game, but the next game. But we'll talk about that later. Sounds good. Uh, bad news, it's not. <laughs> Spoilers! I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, not only does he have hand-to-hand -hand moves, but he also uses holy water and a cross. I guess because he's a clone of you or something, he can do this, because otherwise it's kind of weird that the holiest sub-weapons are the ones he can use on you. <laughs> yeah. The thing I figured out for this fight that was a real interesting click moment for me, he rushes at you very aggressively, but he can also backflip away, so it can be difficult to hit him. He gets opened up for an attack if you perfect guard, but that's pretty difficult. Yeah. He chases after me. If I could set some kind of trap for him that he'd run into... Oh, I can! With the Svarog statue, the very first relic you get leaves a fire trail. If you press the quick step input while you're just standing still, Leon will backstep. So I would backstep and he'd run into the fire and it would stun him and then I could do a combo on him. Wow. That was really cool to figure out, and I think it's neat that it's something you can do with something you definitely have. Yeah, and I'm glad you're getting use out of it, for sure. Because there are a lot of fights where I kind of tried to throw it in there with enemies that are fast. Even in those situations, it isn't very good. Mm. Right after you beat him, you can unlock the second floor. This is where Leon's theme, which is called Lament of Innocence, plays. There's an interesting encounter on this floor against an enemy called the Mirage Skeleton. As its name implies, it has a bunch of other skeletons that appear. They can all damage you, but only one of them is the actual one that you can damage. The way you can tell is that the room has a reflective floor, but only the true Mirage Skeleton has a reflection. Mm -hmm. Explaining it now, it seems pretty obvious, but it can kind of catch you off guard because the other Mirages can attack quite aggressively. And even when you know the trick, they might be standing in such a way that they can obscure which one is the real one. Additionally, there's another shadowy pit room, like the one we mentioned earlier. <laughs> and one of the items in here is the unlock jewel. You remember that door at the bottom of that menacing staircase? Here's the key. Ta-da! So when you use the unlock jewel and go down that stairway, the area name is revealed as the Prison of Eternal Torture. Delightful. This isn't a full-fledged area. You just go down another set of stairs with even louder breathing. And when you get to the bottom, you meet the secret boss of this game, the Forgotten Ones. Did you do this? No, I didn't. I did, however, see somebody else fighting it, and it looked incredibly cool, and I was super sad that I missed it. 
This is the boss that took up a lot of the screen. And I felt like that was only used a handful of times in later fights. And I feel like it was really something else to see it kind of like break apart. Yeah. The first phase of this fight, you're at the bottom level. It's a big creature, but you're at the bottom level. It ends at like the torso, clearly been rotting away. First, you have to hit its lower torso to break it. And then you have to break its guts. <laughs> it's surprisingly uh, violent for how the rest of the game's been. Yeah. Also, as you damage it, there's these big maggots that can cause a whole bunch of status effects. I thought it was just curse at first, but they can do other stuff too. Weirdly, I guess I was standing in a place where if I just kept jumping and doing a full whip combo and landing, they never hit me. But then I saw another video of someone doing the fight and they got hit almost every time they landed. Oh. I should mention, when you do a mid-air whip combo in this game, again, they finished it ahead of schedule, but when you do a mid-air whip combo, Leon is just standing on air. <laughs> I noticed that too. It's functionally fine, but it's just yeah. strange that a big name release from a company that's known for technical excellence, like this is just a thing they had in the game and it's fine. <laughs> you drain the health bar. The platform you're on is actually an elevator. It goes up. Now you're at his upper torso level. Here he'll do fist slams. He'll sweep the platform. And sometimes he'll hold his hand up and blood will drop down on you, which causes poison. This one was pretty hard. I feel like the dodges are not very intuitive. Like, I felt like I timed my jump correctly, but then the bottom of his fist would clip me and I'd still get slammed into the wall. Mm. But then other times I felt like I was too in the way, but instead Leon got moved out of the way of the fist when it seemed like it was going to hit him. I'm sure you can get it consistently with a little practice, but it doesn't look quite right. It can be kind of challenging to tell when he's holding his hand up whether he's going to drip blood on you or do the fist slams, and then acquire different reactions. A good thing to use here is actually high-speed edge. You can hit his torso with less risk, but it does way less damage than hitting his hand, so they want you to get close to his fist. The elevator goes up one more level to his head. And here he can cause rocks to fall from the ceiling, and this seemed like just an attack, but then the rocks were left behind. I realized that luckily the first time he did his big fire breath attack, oh, you should stand behind the rocks. You can quick step through it, but I actually tried to do that, and I got hit and took so much damage. I think that's actually why I died the first time, is I kept trying to be cool and quick step through the fire breath. <laughs> So what did we learn? Don't be cool. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, then near the end of that fight where I won, I accidentally was too far away from any cover. Literally, I had to quick step or I would die. Oh. And then I successfully did the quick step through. <laughs> I stand corrected. Coolness wins. <laughs> when you beat him, you get the Black Orb. This gives you a whole new set of really powerful abilities. The standouts for me... In terms of not actually being effective but being cool is Rapid Slash with the axe. I said I wanted to do more of those melee moves that Doppelganger 2 does. With Rapid Slash, you kick super fast over and over again. It's pretty cool to hit stuff with. It's not very strong, but it's just really fun. You can hammer it out over and over again. Sounds very satisfying. I tend to favor these kinds of quick in-succession moves, but are not very strong. They just seem more satisfying to me. Yeah. <laughs> Though I know functionally they're not as good as the heavy hitters, mm -hmm. but definitely it satisfies something in me. I think if you get a higher combo count, you do more damage, but it's pretty rare to do that. Yeah, it's pretty rare to get combos, at least in, in my experience. I didn't really nail any combos. Yeah, the game tracks it on screen and has like a little combo rating. Just you do 
pretty deliberate whip hits. And the enemies aren't so strong that you're just hitting them over and over again in quick succession. And it resets really fast. You're not going to complete a whip combo reset and then add to that combo count. Yeah. In terms of efficacy and also raising the combo count, with the knives you get Blade Serpent, a cloud of knives that moves like a snake and hits enemies a ton of times over and over again. That's awesome. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's weird. I remember using this on the final boss fight, but this time when I did it, it Turns out he's resistant to sub-weapons, so maybe it wasn't actually helping that I did it. Oh, fair enough. There is one last quote-unquote puzzle blogging your way. You find a room with a tablet on it that has a 1, 2, 3, a blank space, and a 5 in Roman numerals on it. And you have a tablet with 6 in Roman numerals on it, and if you put it in the slot, it buzzes when the little magic pulse reaches the 6. So you need to find a different room with a sun and moon symbol on it, and you put the six tablet in and it flips into a four tablet. A lot of people saw this and are like, why didn't you just turn the tablet around? <laughs> it's a stone tablet. They didn't punch it with like an indentation <laughs> machine or something and it left a four on the other side. Like it was carved. There's nothing on the other side. <laughs> mm -hmm. You can't look at the item and it's like, oh, there's a four on the other side. That's weird. And then you put in the machine, you're like, oh, I, wow, a four? <laughs> like, okay, I get it. It looks a little odd, but yeah. come on. <laughs> And you put the four in the slot and it goes through and then you get the dragon crest which opens the final locked door. There's a little stairway and then you get to the final boss fight. Well, seemingly the final boss fight mm -hmm. against Walter Bernhard. There's a pretty fun exchange before the fight starts. I have been waiting, Leon. Walter, I will never forgive you. I see. It seems you have enjoyed the gift that I gave you. Yes. Thanks to that, I now have the power to defeat you. Well, that power is quite something. But I am beloved by the night. You will taste my powers. Kill you and the night! I absolutely love that quote. It is so iconic. Yeah. There's some lines in games where I feel like if the standard of writing was more to the modern standard, they wouldn't say it, <laughs> or people would have to intentionally be chasing it. So, like, I just love this specific level of quality where it produces really great lines like this. Super cheese factor. Absolutely love it. Then the fight starts, and he'll start doing his attack patterns on you, but you just need to hit him once with the vampire killer. I guess he didn't believe what Leon said about the whip's power because he is shocked that he actually took damage. <laughs> I remember watching your stream archive of this. It seems like you had a bit of a time. I did have a bit of a time and I've since learned from my mistakes because the <laughs> second time I played it, I was much better, I assure you. It was actually one of the easier fights, but certainly the first time I played it, I really struggled. It might have been due to the fact that the emulator was lagging a little bit at that point. Yeah, it was. But I'm just using that as an excuse. I'm not good at this. <laughs> I saw that clip. It was pretty bad. It would have definitely made the fight harder for me. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but no, I learned from my mistakes. I found that getting that distance from him to the other side of the room was really helpful. And once you learn his patterns, as long as you're not ensnared by them, you'll be okay. And it made the fight very long, but I did manage to do it slightly faster than the first time. What about you? 
I really liked the second time. Like, I was kind of thrown off because I didn't remember him being quite so aggressive. Mm -hmm. Seeking energy shots and then the iconic Dracula fireballs that start out slow and pick up speed. Yeah. The energy pillar attack caught me off guard so many times, even when I knew it was coming, because it's so sudden. Sometimes when you're close, you'll do a melee combo that's really fast. I will say, though, my hand cramped really badly playing this. I don't know if you had the same experience, but it really hurt. <laughs> I think I had an okay time. He does have one attack, which did kill me the first time I tried this fight on my most recent replay. He'll teleport by his throne, and then he'll summon a big explosion attack in the middle of the room. If you're close to the middle, when it goes off, you can't get away from it fast enough. You can't block it. You'll take full damage if you try to block it. But you can perfect guard it. Oh, I didn't know that. It's really satisfying. It just cuts the explosion off right there. Oh, I love that. When you beat Walter, he says that he'll keep coming back. And Leon's fully prepared to just deal with him again as revenge for Sarah. But then the camera cuts rapidly and you see sort of outer bits of a skeletal arm and face. And then death appears, laughs very heartily, and kills Walter. <laughs> Walter says that he's been betrayed, but Death says that he is going to grant Walter's power to his master, whoever wields the Crimson Stone. And then a big, I thought this was the Crimson Stone, like a big red egg thing appears. Out of it appears Matthias. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and Matthias explains his motivation. I made Walter's soul mine with the power of this stone. Sense of rage from this wind. Matthias, you abandoned humanity? That's right. By becoming a vampire, I obtained eternal life. That was my goal. It was my revenge against God. Revenge against God? our lives and fought for the sake of God. But God mercilessly stole away the one I loved most. When all I ever wished for was Elizabeth's safety. If limited life is God's decree, then I shall defy it. And within that eternity, I shall curse him forevermore. Preventing others from suffering the same cursed fate. That was Sarah's dying wish. <gasps> Granting my beloved's wish. That is all I can do to prove my love to Sarah. Eternity without her would be nothing but emptiness. So wholesome. Leon <laughs> is a great man. And of course, Matthias is not as much of a wife guy because this doesn't motivate him at all. <laughs> Since Dawn's coming and Matthias can't do this fight himself as a vampire, he orders Death to kill Leon. He disappears. And then Death teleports you to an astral plane area for the final boss fight. I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> out of everything in this game, out of everything that I said that I struggled with, nothing compares to this fight. The first time I played this, I think I streamed pretty much exclusively this fight for four 
hours. <laughs> oh god. Because I just couldn't get it. The emulator was lagging at that point, and then when I restarted my computer, restarted the stream, I was able to kill him very quickly, which was very satisfying. Yeah. But not after four hours. In my recent playthrough, I believe in the stream as well, I did have to use save states. There was just no getting around it for me. There was no way I could have survived had I not used those. So it was a struggle. Someday I will be strong enough to do this fight <laughs> without save states. But right now, I'm just not strong enough. And I'm happy to admit that. <laughs> I'm just not strong enough. What did you think? I remember this fight being a lot better. Other oh, similar games in the genre on PS2 fall apart. The way the 360 era PS3 era wasn't much better about this. Since the fight was not terrible for me, like it wasn't terribly designed, I should say, mm -hmm. I was just like, what a rush. I think I actually beat him on my first try the first time I played the game. Oh, that's awesome! Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, so I was just like riding off the excitement of that. On this playthrough, I think I actually did get killed by him once, and I'm like, oh, I have to redo the, the Walter fight. I mean, that's actually the time when I perfect blocked the big explosion attack, uh -huh. which I wouldn't have gotten to do if I had beaten death the first time. I'm so glad to hear that you had a much better experience than you did. <laughs> After you beat the game, you can look at his entry in the bestiary. He has 4,444 hit points. Number four in Japanese is she, but that's also the word for death. So his health is the word that also means death four times. Four times? Four hours? I'm starting <laughs> to see a connection here. <laughs> it was like death for you, yeah. <laughs> He's also almost completely resistant to sub-weapon attacks. I think I did damage with him sometimes, but he does a counter-attack specifically if you try to hit him with it. Which actually means that, once again, high-speed edge is the best choice to not attack him with, but to dodge his various attacks. Right. I'm curious, how did you find the depth perception in this particular fight? This is the one I mentioned earlier, where I had a really hard time telling when things were going to collide with me. Yeah, I, I thought that was kind of difficult, because the camera is pretty low. Mm-hmm. So it can be tough to tell how close you are to him. Like, I think if they just moved the camera a little higher, you could have gotten a better sense of where exactly you were standing. Yeah. He flies around the outside of the arena to do most of his attacks. He can slash at you with the scythe if you're close. Sometimes he'll wind up a little longer and he'll throw his scythe like a boomerang. It takes a little while for it to fly back to him, actually, so it can be easy to think, oh, he's going to throw it and it's just going to maybe reappear in his hands or something like that. So then when he does other attacks and then also the scythe comes flying back and catch you off guard, he can summon a meteor shower. And also sometimes he'll shout minions and then he'll summon a bunch of tiny skulls that fly at you and then explode once they get close. It repeats in my nightmares. <laughs> I also played this game in Japanese the first time because around the time I was playing all those PS2 action adventures, I had a big phase where I played every game in Japanese. It's like, oh, the voice acting is so much better. I don't know Japanese, that's why I think that. <laughs> also, I'm like, this English voice acting sounds corny, which is bad. And now I'm like, this English voice acting sounds corny, which is great. Yes. He also has an attack where he fires these seeking lasers. You have to dodge them at basically the last second because they move very aggressively. Like the only nicety about them is once you're past them, they don't turn back around at you. Mm -hmm. But they turn very aggressively. Without high-speed edge, I'm not really sure how I did it. Like, the quick-step timing is pretty stringent. <laughs> to think that I would be... I have the power to destroy all related to the vampires. Though you have divine powers, you are no exception! Unfortunately for you, as long as my master survives, I will rise from the dead. 
see. Give him this message. You have become a cursed being, and I will never forgive you. This whip and my kinsmen will destroy you someday. From this day on, the Belmont clan will hunt the knight! The castle starts collapsing, Leon starts running out, and you see Ronaldo in his cabin, and he starts seeing the sunrise for the first time in who knows how long. And this would have been a great shot to end the game on, but then it cuts to Leon walking away from the wreckage of the castle, and his walk looks really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so too. It's like a little foppish dweeb walk. <laughs> like he has a he has a walking animation in the game. That's fine. Why didn't they do that? He's just a proud little butter boy walking away from the castle. <laughs> That is the greatest. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Before the credits, you get this bizarre piece of postscript. And so the story of the Belmont clan's struggle against evil begins. However, Matthias and the Belmonts will not meet again for hundreds of years. Matthias goes into hiding in foreign lands and continues to curse God for eternity. Eventually, he names himself Lord of the Vampires, King of the Night. The years before their next meeting pass slowly and quietly, but with finality. The intermission in this exquisite play from which two souls will never escape. So when I said a lot earlier that Castlevania Legends could have still been in canon, it could have, because that's the first time a Belmont ever fights Dracula. Yep. The new start didn't want to interfere with other parts of the timeline, but removed literal centuries of possibility for stories happening. <laughs> exactly. And it's just a weird ending for the character emotionally. Matthias admitted that he got your wife killed so he could steal a vampire's power and live forever because his wife died, and Leon doesn't try to track him down. Like I was your best friend and you're not going to do anything about it. It's like, I want more. <laughs> I have to learn more. You got to flesh this out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, since they're descendants. So instead of that, you're like, first of all, I'm going to need a new wife. <laughs> it's true. I, I thought about that as well. If you're talking about your betrothed and how all the hardship you've gone through together, and then you have to continue the Belmont line somehow. <laughs> How does Sarah feel about all of this? I guess that speaks to her character even more, because hey, she keeps working on vampires even after this happens. She's a real gem. A little strange. Yeah, a little bit. Not entirely for that. I mean, that's fine that she supports him moving on to other people, but one, that they didn't just have a kid beforehand. Yeah. Which I think would be more emotionally affecting. I completely agree with you. Or that centuries of possible stories just removed entirely. Like, literally, they don't do anything. Or does Leon tell his kids about this? Is it that they don't believe him or something? So when Dracula resurfaces centuries later, the big moment for Trevor Belmont to reclaim his lineage or something? Or, like, when do they get excommunicated? Like, I know Leon quit being a knight. Right. But I don't think they got treated as heretics until later as a plot element. It's a weird, huge gap to leave. And then the sequel... That plot is not related to this at all. It's related to Castlevania 3, <laughs> so... Yeah. 
I'm just at a real loss here. <laughs> so much potential. <laughs> Wasted. There are some things you unlock for clearing the game. There's the Jade Mask accessory. That's the thing I mentioned that lets you smash candles by running into them. If you beat all the bosses, you can reload your save, and in the warp room, there'll be a warp to a boss rush. More games should have features like that. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. There's a name entry screen at the start for your character, which is just what you want your save file to be called. But once you unlock certain things, you can enter these names, and you'll get a different mode. So if you enter the at symbol and Joaquim, you can play as Joaquim. <laughs> this is a really interesting extra. Pretty weird. It's a different combat style, and the game's not as fleshed out. No shop or anything. No equipment. You find upgrades for your character's attack power instead. He fights using a completely different playstyle. Did you try this out at all? I did. Not for very long, mind you. But I was surprised the fact that he had lock-on and Leon didn't. Mm -hmm. This is important for Joaquin because he can attack two different ways. There's a mode where his swords are pointing forwards, and if you press attack, he'll shoot them directly at an enemy. And if you press the heavy attack button to switch modes, he has one where the swords are in a wider band out pattern, and when you attack, he'll slash with them so you can hit bigger groups. This is why the lock-on's useful, because it lets you keep attacking an enemy on the move. This can make some fights a lot easier because of his playstyle, but the first thing you might think to do is House of Satan Mains, because it was the first area. Mm -hmm. Undead Parasite's really hard with Joaquin. <laughs> you do barely any damage, and you take a lot. A lot of people say not to do House of Sacred Remains first with him because of how difficult it is to kill Undead Parasite. Mm -hmm. For some reason, even though I heard that going in, I'm like, I'll do House of Sacred Remains. <laughs> I died doing twice in a row, I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, I'm good. I've seen enough. It is really cool that this is a unlockable character who works completely differently. This is another one of those things that you don't see in modern games. Like, this is a pretty modest package overall for a PS2 game, but this guy would have been at least $5 in DLC now. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then you'd see how much stuff he can't do, and then you'd be like, I paid $5 for this? <laughs> I did find it pretty strange that he would enter into rooms and there would normally be like a sequence or a cutscene or something, but no, he just wanders into rooms. I understand why they didn't script anything, but mm -hmm. it, it did feel a little bit disjointed. Especially, like you said, there's not any more details about his character. Yeah. This could easily just be what he did when he wanted to fight Walter and claim the castle for himself. Right. They could have done another opening text crawl with narration. You know what? You don't even need to pay someone to narrate it. Just put some text that explains the setup. Just literally yeah. anything. Exactly. It would satisfy my curiosity so much. You start outside the castle, but if you just tried to go up to Ronaldo's cabin, you get electrocuted. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. If you do beat this mode, you do get a shortcut scene. It's just Joaquim sitting in Walter's throne, laughing to himself. There are a bunch of portraits that are in Walter's room, which is also another interesting detail. Like, I wonder what they are. Looks like there's some people in them that aren't him. Mm -hmm. But I wish that in Joaquim's ending, beating it would replace all the portraits with portraits of himself. Oh gosh, that would be so great. Also, you unlock Crazy Mode, which is the hard mode for this game. You have to enter at Crazy. This makes the enemies more difficult, like it has the higher difficulty variants of enemies, and there are more of them as well. They seem to take reduced damage. You have a lowered limit for how many items you can carry. Normally you can hold 9 potions at a time, in Crazy you can only hold 5. We mentioned the Doppelganger fight in the Dark Palace of Waterfalls has 2 Leon clones. 
some of those rooms with laser traps where you had to sort of time your jumps and dodges. Now the laser traps swivel in place as well. In terms of difficulty, I'm glad that it isn't just the numbers are bigger. It actually does some notable changes so that for people who are good at the game, they actually get something different to do. Yeah. When you beat this mode, you get a victory screen that declares, you are the crazy of Castlevania. Wow, that's my new title. I'm thinking that. That's remarkable. Oh, I absolutely love that. You are the crazy of Castlevania. <laughs> Luckily, this game's obscure enough that there aren't going to be tons of people coming at you being like, oh, did you really be crazy mode in Castlevania Lament of Innocence? Like, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and for beating this, you will unlock one more character. You enter at Pumpkin. And you play as Pumpkin. <laughs> Speaking of Little Butter Boys, <laughs> the really short character that has Leon's moveset, has the Vampire Killer by default, makes a funny little squeaky shoe noise when he runs, and instead of other sub-weapons, you get the Pumpkin Bomb. Basically just a little grenade, and it has different variants for all the orbs. It sounds adorable, I'm going to have to look it up afterwards. When you beat the game as Pumpkin, then over the credits, It'll show little pictures of Pumpkin interacting with characters from the game. Oh, wonderful. There's also a thing you can enter. I think you have to beat the game any difficulty to get this. I was kind of confused because it was like, at LL skill. But in this case, they want you to read the A. So it's actually all skill. And you start with all the whip combos and abilities. Oh, I see. And this is another thing that seems like it would be fun to run with. And not just Vertical High and Falcon Claw, which we mentioned, but moves where you can go immediately into a launcher and slam down on the ground, do an attack to pull enemies in, another one where you do like an upwards twirl that hits enemies a ton of times. The final move you unlock, I didn't get it, even though I explored all the areas a lot, because it just takes a lot of kills and types to unlock, or the other way to unlock it is to do 100 perfect guards consecutively. Oh my, what? Maybe against the Flea Man I could have done it, but I can just imagine I'd get to like 99 perfect cards and then I'd screw it up and then I would turn the game off and I'd throw it in garbage and light it on fire. <laughs> Go out for a walk. Or that, I could react like a normal person probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no judgment here. I certainly would not think to go for a walk at first. I'd be like, nope, garbage. Overall, what do you think of Lament of Innocence? I really am hungry for more of the plot. I want it to be fleshed out. The gameplay itself, I wasn't super keen on. Again, I'm one of those people who like the more linear Castlevania games. Mm -hmm. I really thrive with those, rather than even Metroidvanias. I'm not actually a big fan of Metroidvanias, apart from Symphony of the Night. Oh wow. I know, it's pretty surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself hungry for more in Lament of Innocence. I think it's a great origin story. It's got a great scaffolding to make a wonderful case for itself, but I feel like it kind of fell short. If I wanted to see a Castlevania game remade and reimagined, it would be this one. Yeah. I want to see it fleshed out. I want to know more about it. On the whole, I was really glad to experience it. The first time I started playing the games in their chronological order, I couldn't get Lament of Innocence to work right away. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh no, am I going to have to skip this game? Eventually I did get it to work for streaming, and I'm really glad I did. Because it's not perfect, I'm no good at the game, but music, the aesthetics, the clothing, the environment, and the little bit of plot we get mm -hmm. is enough that kept me really interested. And I know that there's a huge fan base behind it, 
and they try and link all these plot points together, and I think it's a great effort. I just wish it were done officially so we'd have something to cling on to. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, so as I said, this game stood out to me, and I think it's still true. A lot of those things I felt. Even if the ending isn't as good as I remember, I have seen those other PS2 games. It's not like a lot of the other ones have shown themselves to be a lot better than my memory held them to be. Right. Generally, you can avoid damage design-wise. I certainly wasn't perfect dodging every single attack myself. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff like the map layout is certainly frustrating. It seems quite dated. Yeah. I do still think it's good. Like a lot of games that I've covered on this podcast, I think it was like really great. Maybe you just need the right mindset to go into this. I think with the right mindset, this game can strike you as solid. I don't know that you could really play it now and be blown away by the experience. It's just not that kind of game. Right. But I think that's okay. The fact that it does so many different unique things makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. Removing Sonya from the canon probably could have been avoided. I like Leon well enough, but they could have probably told the story with Sonya. <laughs> I completely agree. I really like Leon as a character as well, but I feel like there was such a missed opportunity to have Sonya make an appearance, especially in this medium. Mm -hmm. You know, give her a better chance than a Game Boy game that didn't do so hot. Yeah. Additionally, in Curse of Darkness, the villain pulls off some trickery to get the main character's wife murdered before the game even starts. Hmm. You know, Igarashi, I just think you're kind of playing the same notes here. I think you got a little biased. At the start of Harmony of Dissonance, the Game Boy Advance game he directed when he came back to the series, the Belmont in a fancy red and white costume. His friend, who he hasn't seen in a while, but has been friends with for a long time, comes to him while he's in a bad way and says, Hey, the woman that's very important to you has been kidnapped by a vampire and has been taken to a castle. And then you get there, but you get some hints that maybe this longtime friend of yours isn't as trustworthy as he can be. I'm noticing a trend. <laughs> I mean, they play out differently. But again, I couldn't not notice it. <laughs> At least having Sonya and maybe some different characters could have avoided that comparison a little more. Maybe her grandpa gets kidnapped this time. Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of gamers in 2003 didn't want to be a girl rescuing her grandpa. <laughs> But also, a lot of people in the 2000s had terrible taste and were wrong about a lot of things. Well, there you go. How do you feel about the sort of RPG presentation of this game when it's not that? RPG elements can be overwhelming if they're not executed correctly. So I feel like it did just enough to dip its toes into it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't biting off more than it could chew. It wasn't egregious in any way. So I think it did it okay. I would, again, like to see it fleshed out more one way or the other, but mm -hmm. I can respect it enough for being half and half. What do you think? This game, I think, as it is, could probably afford to not show you those numbers. Show you an enemy health meter at least, but that's about it. Or... And this is a kind of weird split between Castlevania games, where the sequel has a lot more variety in terms of the equipment you can use and items. Yeah. But you can also level up. So if you find like a better version of a sword you have, it's fine but not exciting. Yeah. Because you're also gaining levels which increases your power anyway. So this is just a different bump happening a little earlier than you might have expected. But in a game like this, I think it would actually work a lot better where that's the way 
that changes is that you just find equipment and that affects your stats. Right. You mentioned the Netflix Castlevania show. Were you aware of Leon being the main character of this game before he was mentioned in the show? Yes, because I played Symphony of the Night for my friend's request, fell in love with it, and then I started playing Castlevania 3 in preparation for the Netflix series, which I knew was based on Castlevania 3. Mm -hmm. At that point, I watched the first season and I started playing more of the game, so I must have played Lament of Innocence at that point because I remember feeling a little bit jaded about the Netflix anime not covering the origin story and in my brain I was like I want the Netflix anime to be all-encompassing obviously it's wishful thinking but of course I was still glad to see Trevor because Castlevania 3 is one of my favorites if not my favorite Castlevania game I do believe I knew about Leon at the time at least after the first season and then they mentioned him I believe in the second season yes. portrait which I thought was a really nice nod and they have a whole bunch of little things that are kind of nice details like that don't get me wrong there's a lot about the Netflix show I deeply dislike but there's also a lot that I can appreciate about it so that said it was very exciting for both my friend and I who got me into Castlevania we were watching it together as like a tradition if you will <laughs> to see Leon and we we're like oh yes that's the boy how exciting <laughs> <laughs> it was really nice to see so it made me happy to know that the team behind Netflixvania really looked at their source material some places more than others perhaps not the writer um, but I know the animators really are gung-ho about that I appreciated that a lot have you seen the show I've seen all the seasons cool. I have such the same problems you do with it they swear like I did in middle school. <laughs> right? I would say the swears a lot and also emphasize when I said them, so you really knew I meant business. To me, it just seems like a nonsensical way to go about things. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I get it. You can swear. I'm proud of you. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Oh, you're doing it again? Fantastic. And then the amount of times where, like, there's an action scene, they cut away to some civilians getting their intestines ripped out or whatever, and... <laughs> I get it. Like, I'm not even like, oh my god, they showed a civilian getting their intestines ripped out? Like, that's happened like 50 times already. Yeah. I just expect that's happening in the background and like, there's a cool fight going on right now. Yeah. Can we keep some focus here? Yeah. <laughs> right, intestines, I get it. Everyone's got them. <laughs> you just can't get enough. <laughs> Actually, it was them name dropping Leon in season two that made me realize I wanted to do an episode on this game. Nice. That said, if they make Leon swear that much, like, I can't buy that. Exactly. Leon doesn't swear. Have you seen him? No, he's wholesome. I think the most he says is damn. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think he means it specifically in the Christian way. <laughs> we got uh, one response to this episode. I'd like to thank him for writing in because I sure did bug people a lot. Thank you so much. This one comes from Kyle and he wrote in, Lament of Innocence was one of those games that I played a lot as a kid, even though I was bad at it and could never get very far. So the opening area and House of Sacred Remains are burned into my memory pretty well. I remember a couple of things pretty vividly, using the item duplication secret. I must have learned about this on GameFAQs or something, but if you stood in a specific spot in one of the hallways in the beginning of the game, you could tell where to stand by the light cast by the windows, you could hover over the items in your inventory to duplicate them for free. This was magical to me as a child. What? That's amazing! I got stuck for a long time on the whip swinging tutorial. I still don't know why they made it so finicky. <laughs> Finding the sequence break way to the high door in House of Sacred Remains, really carefully turning 90 degrees in the air and whip jumping instead of waiting to get the sprint. Pretty sure I spent an hour or more smashing my face in that ledge railing. I don't know if this is quite the same one that I talked about. That was really cool to get, because you can tell that they made it just barely possible, but they did mean for you to be able to do it. <laughs> Also says, one time I decided to stay up all night in college and see if I could beat the whole game before the morning. 
I don't know why. I didn't succeed, but I did beat like 80% of it. It's pretty good. I definitely haven't played as much Lament as I have Curse of Darkness, but I have a lot of fondness for it. I remember it not being well-liked at the time, but I really think the PS2 Castlevanias were interesting and mostly successful attempts at bringing the Castlevania experience to 3D. Thank you, Kai. We definitely talked about a lot of these points, and yeah, that's true. I think that there's certain things people wanted a 3D Castlevania to be that I don't know are entirely reasonable. Yeah. A lot tried it, and most have settled with making the game 2D to do that. Yeah. I've mentioned a few times now that I prefer linear Castlevania games, I prefer the classic Castlevania games, but I fully agree that it's pretty difficult to take that concept and put it into 3D, so when you consider it in that scope, it's a pretty solid game. So much changed after this game came out. Before this came out, there was Castlevania 64 and Legacy of Darkness in 1999, which definitely have more variety overall, more playable characters, you're running around these big open environments, jumping around, it's not just square rooms, but by that same nature, they're a lot more frustrating to play. Yeah. And in terms of graphics, like I said, it's kind of difficult to tell what's what. That's another thing I think could benefit from a more modern remake. Absolutely. In 2004, March, the year after this game came out, there was the Ninja Gaiden reboot on the Xbox which is like a supercharged version of this formula. It has some action-adventure elements and platforming. The platforming is way more annoying, and I don't like it at all in Ninja Gaiden. But it's definitely a lot flashier. It's also a game that kind of just became its own evolutionary path that just its series followed, and other action games aren't like it. So a lot of people who are Ninja Gaiden fans are just still playing Ninja Gaiden. It's also one of those games where they don't expect you to dodge everything. They give you evasive maneuvers and guards and stuff like that, but when I watched people who were good at the game play it, they'd say, if you get to the end of the game and you can't afford healing items, you basically ruined your run. <laughs> very difficult, not very good encounter design at times. Sometimes really cool, and sometimes they design encounters seemingly based around all the game's weaknesses, and I don't mm -hmm. understand why. <laughs> but Team Ninja's had some success recently. Might be going back to make another Ninja Gaiden in the future. Who knows? I'd be interested to see it because of the games they made that aren't Ninja Gaiden, which I like much better. Right. The sort of sequel to Lament of Innocence, also directed by Igarashi, was in January 2005. Nano Breaker. This has some more variety to it as well. It has a sort of similar feel in terms of controls and combat, but you don't get new weapons per se, but you get these combo chip things that you can put into the skill tree. So now instead the different combos transform your sword into different weapons. Oh. It's actually pretty cool, like you can do a sort of whip grab attack and certain finishers like a big sweeping attack will make it like a whip or like a big slam attack will turn into a hammer. Also the game has a lot of blood in it, like the upgrade currency is tracked as gallons of blood. <laughs> wow. But there's options in the menu to change what color the blood is. And there are, I think, three different options for making the blood rainbow colors. Oh, fun! <laughs> Unfortunately, the end of the game's difficulty totally collapses. I said all PS2 games have this problem, and I think Nano Breaker has the most massive collapse in enjoyment at the end. It's probably one of the worst experiences I've had finishing a video game. Oh no! Yeah, there's just like an awful rival character you fight the whole time. Also, the characters' names are like Jake and Keith, which is like, wow, cool. I can't believe my nemesis Keith betrayed us. <laughs> but then after that fight, I'm like, all right, I got through that. 
the two bosses you fight after that point are also terrible. Like, not difficult just in the way that fighting Walter and Death in a row is, but actively bad. Unenjoyable. Too punishing. <laughs> there are parts in games that are hard that I didn't like. I've told some people this before, but I think like playing the Dark Souls 3 DLC lowered my opinion of that game versus playing the base game. Right. But there are parts of Dark Souls 3 I like and I think are interesting and worthwhile, even if you sometimes have to slog through a part that I really don't like. But in Nano Breaker, when the game gets bad, it gets worse after that. <laughs> so, kind of surprising that it came from the same person as this. Right. This is probably the most some people have ever heard of Nano Breaker, and some people are going to be like, it can't be that bad. Okay, have fun, I guess, if you decide to play Nano Breaker. <laughs> the significantly less cool Konami game about a cyborg fighting people with a cool sword who has a checkered pass. <laughs> Feel bad for anyone who saved up all their game buying money to buy Nano Breaker in January of 2005 because in February of 2005, Devil May Cry 3 came out. Such a great game. Great, great game. My first real character action game. I played it before the other Devil May Cry's or anything. Mm, same here. I consider Devil May Cry 1 more of like a PS2 action adventure title with an interesting combat system, but Devil May Cry 3 is definitively all the things that people like about character action. You have a wide variety of moves, and the motivation to use them is like a style ranking system, and you don't have to use all the moves available to you. I think that's kind of more what Devil May Cry 1's deal is, where the moves have specific purposes. Same thing with Lament of Innocence. Devil May Cry 3, it's about style specifically, and you can just choose how you want to approach it. Mm -hmm. That became an evolutionary line of games eventually, but for a while it was just Devil May Cry. Yeah, January with Nanobreaker, February with Devil May Cry 3, and then in March 2005, God of War came out. Not a game I like especially, but you can't deny the impact it had because basically every action-adventure game in the Xbox 360 and PS3 generation was God of War again. It's true. A lot more spectacle, a lot more different kinds of gameplay variety. I remember actually the magazine preview for the game. It was so early that they hadn't even named the main character yet, so they were still just calling him the Spartan. <laughs> I think it was PlayStation Magazine said he has so many combos it would make a Belmont blush because their only oh. point of comparison was Lament of Innocence, I guess. That's hilarious. I didn't know that. Not to throw too much shade. Actually, this is. I'm not going to pretend I'm not. But <laughs> you actually have a use for all the combos you get in Lament of Innocence. And in God of War, there are like three that are actually worth doing. <laughs> Look, I watched people play that game and they just did those three combos over and over again and they beat the whole game. That's fine, but it's kind of non-variety. It doesn't rank you on style, so the moves that aren't the three best ones, so you just <laughs> shouldn't do them. And then at the end of 2005 in November came Castlevania Curse of Darkness. A lot more variety of weapons, different room layouts and map layouts, and the graphics are better, and the music is better. Like, really so great in all these ways, except that you move really slow, yep. and the rooms are really big. They made both of those mistakes, <laughs> and it makes me never want to play that game ever again in my entire life. You know what? That's completely valid. It's good to play once, I think. Yeah. I mean, one of my friends was playing a bunch of Castlevania games and started Curse of Darkness, saw how quickly Hector doesn't move, and stopped playing the game. <laughs> There's a video I saw of someone trying to get 100% map completion. So the first thing you do is you turn around from the castle entrance, and there's a path that was leading up to the castle. I'm like, oh, that's cool. 
Except it's a huge roundabout. It's a really long circular linear path. There's one item in the middle of the path and that's it. And the music looped three or four times the entire track. And it's not especially short. Agony, I cannot think of anything worse. You could play it on an emulator now, and like emulators have speed up functions. That could alleviate that problem a bit. I mean, you'll have to hear the music get sped up a lot, but that's a price I think is worth paying. Yes. <laughs> I looked into seeing if anyone had tried to fix the running speed issue after I started researching this episode a couple weeks before. This game has been out for ages. Someone figured out a rough solution. It's not perfect, but they did make Hector run a lot faster. Mm -hmm. But then seeing that, I realized there's no reason to ever use the dodge moves in this game because you run so fast you can just move out of the way of everything. <laughs> so it completely breaks the combat <laughs> to do that. Love that. I love it. Playing with emulator speed up to just run through those linear hallways is the most ideal way you're ever going to experience the game, I think. Mm -hmm. Did you play Curse of Darkness? You did, right? I did, I did. I remember thinking it was quite weird. <laughs> For some reason, Trevor just really rubbed me the wrong way in that game. Yeah, he's a huge jerk in that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I had this idea of you when I played the other game. Why is it ruined? <laughs> also, he has a whip moveset. Ah, yes. I didn't want to play that game again, but it's pretty fun. You know, that machine gun kick you can get with the black crystal in this game is one of his moves. Mm -hmm. Combat's really fun. Anyone who ever asks me, I always liken Curse of Darkness to goth Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. I think it's a pretty fair um, way to describe it. Also, the secret bosses, Legion, who's in a few other games, the thing they do with them in that game is a little more interesting, in that there's a two-phase fight, actually. Mm. And also the best way to deal damage to him during the first phase is to make the sort of joke electric guitar weapon, and then just have Hector rock out. It'll destroy all the enemies before they get close to you and damage most of Legion's outer shell. What? That's incredible! I love that! <laughs> I love that, and I love the chairs thing. I don't know what it was about the chairs. Yeah, there's a little chair collecting minigame. There's a room with a bunch of chairs in it. it. Starts off with just like one, I think, but as you sit in chairs, those chairs will appear in the chair room. I remember when I got the final hit on Dracula, I was excited, but then I'm like, Oh my god, I didn't sit in Dracula's throne! <laughs> <laughs> It's the chair, <laughs> which is the thing you have to do during the boss fight, by the way, <laughs> to wow. run over there. After you beat that first phase, then the entire throne room flies away for the astral plane final boss fight in that game. <laughs> wow, I didn't even know you could sit in his throne. There wasn't a uh, 3D Castlevania for a long time after that. DS Generation was a trilogy of Castlevania games, and there was like a multiplayer 2D one for the consoles as well. They brought it back with another developer, Castlevania Lords of Shadow, October of 2010. When I said that God of War became all games in the 360 PS3 generation, that includes Castlevania Lords of Shadow. Yes. It tries to pull from other games as well. It has some big monster fights that are like dumbed down versions of Shadow of the Colossus, quick time button pressing events, like popular games of the time. They got celebrity voice actors. I think it's a pretty good litmus test of how much you like someone's voice. I'd say, like, I like Robert Carlyle's voice a lot. I could listen to him read the phone book. But then his dialogue in Lords of Shadow is about as interesting as the phone book, and I got bored of it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I have very minimal experience with Lords of Shadow as of this recording. Mm -hmm. I will be playing them at some point, someday, when I muster the courage. <laughs> but my impression is not that great. <laughs> also, Patrick Stewart's in it. They gave most of the good, well, better lines to him, and he's the narrator. That's cool. 
as of this recording, Metroid Dread has newly been released, and it's by the same developer, Mercury Steam. And so two different people I saw today are like, I actually have a soft spot for Lords of Shadow. Mm. I guess I could see that. And definitely at the time, we mentioned 2D games having a rough go of it in the PS1 era. In the PS3 and Xbox 360 era, when Lords of Shadow came out, everyone's like, wow, a single-player-only game that's long. I can't believe it. <laughs> that really earned a lot of points with people. I do believe that it was the highest grossing Castlevania game of all time. Yeah. I'm not going to recommend again Sit As Hard as Nano Breaker, a game which takes less time, but takes more of your life away, potentially, I think. <laughs> If you want to play Lament of Innocence today, it was released as a PS2 classic for PS3 for 10 bucks. If you have a working PS2, disc only copy of this game as of this recording goes for around 15 bucks. A complete copy goes for around 30 bucks. I don't know if it's especially worth it, though the box art weirdly in America is the best. An Ayami Kojima piece of Leon that looks really nice. Mm -hmm. It mostly emulates accurately on PCSX2. The version I saw was version 1.4, though I think that's the version you used, so maybe not. <laughs> well, my computer was quite crap at the time, so it should be okay if you have a decent computer. PS2 emulation has had quite a few struggles, though you can also get in-development versions. I just think the team's cautious around making a stable release for those versions, but they mostly work fine. You can speed up the game for the walking through hallways if you want. Sounds a lot better to me. That wraps up the episode. Ella, I want to thank you again for joining me on this. Thank you so much for having me. Got anything you want to plug? You can find me at Melodops. I stream Castlevania pretty much exclusively. I haven't done it for a while, but I'm hoping to pick up speed again on my streams. So if you want to see me fail through video games, <laughs> please check it out on Twitch. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty quiet, but send me a DM if you have any questions. Their Castlevania cosplays are astonishing they are so good oh you are so kind thank you so much <laughs> you know i think i'm just saying things that are true I don't, is that praise i think it's just true they are really good <laughs> i really appreciate it so much thank you you do sometimes do streams in cosplay correct it's been a hot minute but i fully intend to do one again in the future as for me you can find me as always at beam splash x on twitter you can find the show at thought abt games or we thought about games.com which has the show notes, which will include all the things we've referenced, things that might be adjacent to what we talked about. So thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone who listened, and keep thinking. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>